Hey, uh, welcome to Red River Podcast number 38. Um, you know, doing it in an und- undisclosed location here. Me and Langan, uh, what's going on? What's happening, man? Hey, hey. Um, so, very special, very special guest on the phone today, all the way from fucking California. Um, somebody that I've known for a while because he was entrenched in the Long Island music scene. So, um, he's he's moved to California and been doing a lot of stuff with movies. Uh, so welcome, Rob G. Hey, man. How are you? What's happening? Good. You know, it's funny you say entrenched, but but in reality, we, we both shared a drummer in our respective bands. So it, that practically means that we dated the same girl. That's what it feels <laughs> like. That's that's what our relationship is like. We're, Eskimo brothers. We're Eskimo brothers. <laughs> Do you? I never even understood that term. I don't either. <laughs> it's just funny because I know what it means, but I don't know why it means what it means. Let's we'll go to Wikipedia. <laughs> I know what I'm doing Saturday night. Yeah. <laughs> as soon as we hang up, we're going to hit the Google. So, um, Rob, man, you at the moment you what what is your exact title? Because I know you do the Shockwaves podcast for like Blumhouse, right? Yeah, so I'm the co-host and co-creator of Shockwaves, which is a weekly horror talk show podcast via the Blumhouse Productions podcast network. Um, And also I'm the director of distribution for Dread Central Presents, which is a horror label through Epic Pictures. Okay, yeah. So, and just recently, you know, like we had on, uh, let's say, Damien Leone, who wrote uh, and directed Terrifier. So, you know, thanks to the company for allowing us to do the double feature. Yes. We did it. Oh, yeah. We did it with, because uh, we also had D- Damien Maffei, who's a sweetheart from uh, The Strangers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, great guy. Strangers uh, 2. Strangers 2, right. Pray at Night. Uh, wh- what did you, you know, uh, you know, obviously diplomatically, you know, I mean, compared <laughs> to the first Strangers, did you enjoy the first one? Uh, I I do love the first one. I am going to confess that I have not seen the second one yet. Okay. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, but I'm, but I, I've known Damien just kind of through social circles for years and i was really happy to hear i knowing what a big genre fan he was i was really happy to hear that he got that opportunity so i was i was stoked for him and um i like the first movie but believe it or not one of my biggest fears i have two big fears when it comes to just real life horror and it's home invasion and drowning and so i actually have a really 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 tough time with home invasion movies so oh that's i i I own The Strangers. I've seen it maybe once. I have a, I never feel like, oh, it's Friday night. I'm just going to throw on Last House on the Left and The Strangers and have a good time. <laughs> Kick back a few beers. So, um, so, and real quick, I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to speak upon that because I love Home Invasion. I also want to say, do you know Damien was also in a Long Island punk band? No, I didn't. I I knew we had some sort of Long Island connection, but I didn't know his music history at all. Yeah, they that's, were, they that's were, rad. They were called the New York Rippers. How funny. Oh, <laughs> very, very cool. cool. Um, but for me, like home invasion is um, all right. So so yesterday, uh, you know, we played a show and I was talking to someone about the movie Hereditary. And a lot of a lot of times people are like, oh, you know, it wasn't scary or it was so scary. And in my head at 40 years old, the only thing I think of is, hey, cancer and unemployment are like the only two things that <laughs> <Seriously>. scare me. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so um, I, I watch movies for a different reason. But when I watch a home invasion, I still feel like that could happen. It sure, oh, it does. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You yeah. know, especially being like a, a, a such a left leaning liberal. You know, I don't own a gun. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> but, 
but I got no problem. You want to throw, you know, you want to throw, <laughs> throw the make, bones. Yeah, you want you want to make a, someone who breaks into your house Swiss cheese. By all means, I'm all for it. Um, so yeah. if, you, if you got that, I'll hammer, be in the kitchen fumbling for the steak knife, like in the <laughs> movies. You know what I mean? That's what I'm saying. We'll, we'll be smoked by the by, <laughs> by the kitchen dead in a second. Trying to stab someone with a spoon. Um, <laughs> but yeah, home invasion to me. Um, I don't know. It's still terrifying. So I watch stuff like that. Um, have you ever seen the Spanish movie Kidnapped? No, that one I haven't Great. seen. Um, yeah, no. There's there's a handful that I like, but it's again, it's a tough. Those are, those aren't the type of movies I go to for fun, so to speak. I watch right. a lot of movies, a lot of horror movies in general. Uh, my tastes tend to change over the years, or. More importantly, the funny thing is like we revisit these things that we loved as kids because depending where you are in your life, you see it differently. So it's like movies that I loved in the 80s that I see now in my 40s are like sometimes they're even better. And sometimes it's like, man, I wish I didn't go back to that because it was amazing in my head on VHS. Um, But yeah, I don't really go out of my way for for uh, home invasion movies. There's uh, there's few and far between that I like. What subgenre do you like the best? Like, what do you go to? I think um, I th- I really uh, I really like horror comedy to be honest and and what I mean by that is kind of the over the top gore fests like uh, like the early Peter Jackson stuff like Dead Alive and Bad Taste and mm-hmm. Evil Dead Two is one of my favorite movies of all time so sure. it's like I love that stuff where basically it, it's just it, you're it's so gory and over the top that you can't help but laugh out loud at it and they're just fun like those are fun movies that you could get a bunch of people together and just have a good time speaking of um oh i'm sorry go ahead no that was it i was done go no, ahead i was gonna say <laughs> speaking of horror comedies i i was psyched to see uh you guys are when those blu-rays you're putting out that nina Fore- oh, yeah. nina forever was gonna be on there because that was a movie oh, yeah. not a lot of people saw and i loved it as a horror comedy yeah, no, it's it's a great little movie. It was so basically that that was released by Epic Pictures, which is the company I work for. I think digitally. I think it only got a digital release, and maybe Shutter had it for a little while. Mm-hmm. But um, but it was kind of that weird transition where not a lot of people were doing physical releases anymore, at least independent companies, because uh, not a lot of people were buying uh, DVDs anymore, or kind of like the Walmart deals were drying up. Right. But long story short, like I'm still a huge physical collector. I love it. Uh, I buy, I mean, if you see my movie collection at home, it's, I'm standing in front of it right now and it's ridiculous. Uh, I, I just, I love home media. And so it was important for me to put out the dread movies that way. And we got to a point where not only were we falling behind on our releases in terms of like getting them out at the same time as the VOD, but we have some pretty weird fucking movies and, uh, there was concern about releasing them alone. Like, uh, like imitation girl is one of my favorites it's a beautiful art house sci-fi movie written and directed by a woman and it's just interesting to me it's there's something mesmerizing about it but i get that it's not exactly the sort of thing that's that's going to appeal um as as much as something like terrifier where you see the cover and you know exactly what that movie is and you're like i gotta buy that right Uh, and so the idea was well you know what if we can do double features where it's still got tons of bonus features and all this extra stuff and we pair it up with a similar movie, then now we're splitting the costs in half because and, and catering to two different audiences. So it's basically basically everything I've been doing in the movie business has been trying to just almost like stuff that came out of the, uh, the music industry. Like what are creative ways to get the most bang for your buck? And so I looked in our catalog and I saw 
Nina Forever was one of our movies and it never came out on Blu-ray or DVD. Yeah. So I was like, oh man, you know what I would want as a fan? I want a Blu-ray of Nina Forever with Imitation Girl. And so that's kind of how we did the double features and people seem to be responding really, really well to that. So um, I hope I'm onto something. I don't know. <laughs> what's, what, what's it like now to like maneuver like the business, you know, like it's at this point, like you're talking now like music to Spotify, you know, it's like uh, you, all these streamings and, and so between like Netflix and like Shutter and all these things, like how, how does somebody like you just cut deals with, with these companies? Well, it's really difficult. And, and part of that, and I'm learning all this has been a crash course for the last year. I, I started Epic Pictures last September and I just passed the year mark. And so my job technically is acquisition. So basically, I watch cool movies and I tell them which ones I think we should put out. And then from there, it's, it's a matter of negotiating um, the best, best way to distribute the movie. And then I, I didn't know that I was getting into this, but basically, I've done every step of the way. I've, I've called theaters physically to get them to play the movies. I've written the pitch documents for VOD. So the VOD outlets know all the cool details about the movie. Uh, I've produced the Blu-rays from start to finish, which is something I never thought I'd be doing. Um, so it's been interesting to go through the whole process. Uh, but quite frankly, I don't know. It's a really hard time out there just for anything creative to make money off anything creative. Um, so the, I don't know how people make money in the movie business. It's like, yeah, I mean, it, it almost makes no sense. It's the I, same with music. Um, I think, but the, you just, I think, I think the same, like I, I always wonder, I, I actually know the guy who picks the VOD movie. So we'll talk after the right. show. <laughs> oh yeah. 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 Um, but like, isn't it funny, you know, to sidetrack here for a minute. So we're, we're both failed musicians, you know, like in the, in, in the grand scheme of things. But yeah. did you ever think that you would somehow parlay and, and, and watch movies for a living to tell what company, you know what I'm saying? Like, it's such a great, it's such a great position to be in, to watch cool movies and be like, I like this one. And I believe in this one in a way it, 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 it it's almost like, you know, we're such big mu uh, music and movie fans that this is almost like the the B to the A switch. Yeah, it's uh, I mean, look, 90 percent of the time I'm convinced I'm living in the Matrix because none of this <laughs> makes any logical sense. Uh, and I still question that. But no, I mean, if, if you want me to give you the super abbreviated version of how. I got from Long Island to here. Yeah, let's do um, that. Let's do that because I, I really, you know, I, I think it's such an interesting thing, you know. Like, what made you leave here? Well, I think, honestly, passion. Passion goes a long way. And, and here's the thing, because a lot of people have done similar things to me, you know, after me in terms of, like, I started out creating a horror website. And I did that for this, like, there was no ulterior motive. I didn't think I was going to get into the business doing it. It was literally something I did out of passion and fun, which I'm sure is the reason you do your podcast. It's just like, it's something you feel deeply about and passionately about, and you want to have an outlet to talk about this stuff. And so was this I, I, you know, icons, right? Icons. of Fright? Icon, Yeah. Icons of fright was, uh, yeah. So basically I was a musician in long Island. I was working, odd jobs. Uh, I worked for my cousin's architecture firm, answering phones and booking his appointments and stuff like that. And on the side, I created a website called Icons of Fright back in 2004 with my friend, uh, Mike Cucinata, 
who basically he managed a hot topic and we just had mutual friends and I, you know, I was really giving it a go in the music industry. I, I was in a band called Pretty Polly with your drummer from Playing Dead, Steve Joseph. Uh, and even after that, I just like I joined bands as like not a session player, but like oh, a bass player for this band that might get signed or whatever. I I really wanted that to be a living. Uh, I just thought, oh, it'd be so cool if you get to go do music. But really, there was this giant shift. Kind of my memory of it was at the in the very early two thousands where. It, like it became impossible to to kind of make a dent anywhere in the Long Island music scene. The irony is we started Pretty Polly in the 90s and we were the only band that sounded like that, which for lack of a better term was, I guess, like a Nirvana-esque band. And it was just all hardcore. It was like VOD and 25 to Life and like all, there was a huge thriving hardcore scene. And we just didn't fit in. And not only do we not fit in, people were a bunch of fucking dicks about it and like constantly put us down because we were like a Nirvana ripoff band or whatever, which to me is funny because now 25 years later, that's cool. It's like cool if you sound like Nirvana, but back then it didn't, it was like whatever. Um, but whatever we have, we kind of evolved. We, we were, Steve and I were in the sub pop bands. We loved, I remember first listening to Sunny day real estate when all there was, was a seven inch and being like, wow, this is cool. Like if we could do like the heavy stuff, but keep the like melodic, you know, maybe we'd be onto something. But anyway, I digress. I like it. We're in the digress. We were in the away. music industry. Yeah, we were in the music industry, and basically, what I remember being the turning point because we didn't have like MySpace was a really great thing. It didn't, it, but it wasn't there yet in terms of being beneficial for bands and booking tours and getting your music out there. It was like right before that. And my memory of Long Island is like all these Long Island bands blew up. Taking Back Sunday, who Steve was very briefly in, and we shared studio space with them, and then they went off to blow up. Then we shared studio space with Bayside, and they kind of went and blew up. So basically, we were like sharing studio space with all these bands that kept blowing up, and we could never get that opportunity. And what I remember is that once it became a pay-to-play thing, it was kind of over, because you were booking you were booking venues and trying to kind of make a, a, a noise, and then all of a sudden these venues are like, oh, no, you have to buy these these 100 tickets in advance and pay up front and sell them. And you know the deal. It's hard enough to get your same 20 friends to come see you again. Absolutely. <laughs> so, absolutely. <laughs> so, so basically I was at a point where I was really, really frustrated at the music industry. I also worked at Tower Records as a store artist and was kind of like seeing how things worked even on the corporate side. And it was equally as bad. And so I just wanted to do something that had nothing to do with music that harkened back to a love of childhood. And, and it turned out to be horror movies. Like I grew up reading Fangoria, watching the Universal Monster movies, and then renting everything I could in the 80s on VHS. And so uh, yeah, I'd taken a graphics course. I couldn't get a job. I, I was trying to find a job in kind of the web world and nobody would hire me. And so I was like, well, you know what? I need practice. If I'm going to do this, I want it to be something I love that's fun. And so I met this guy, Mike, through Mutual Friends, and and he was just the first person that got all of my horror references. Like, we'd go to conventions together and see Andrew Robinson from Hellraiser signing, and we both, like, nerd out and be like, oh, my God, the guy from Dirty Harry. And it's like, wait, you know he's from Dirty Harry, too? Hell and, yeah. and we just found this kinship, and it's like, you know what would be great is if because you go up to them and you feel like an asshole because you're like, oh, here's 20 bucks. Can you sign my thing for two seconds? And that's it. And so we were like, how can we make that interaction just last a little longer? And then we're like, you know what? If we had a horror website that was all about interviews, we would have an excuse to talk to them longer. 
And so we started Icons of Fright as a way to talk to people at conventions longer than the two minutes that they, you know, was, that your 20 was, bucks would get you. Was there anything like that at the time? Because that, that's pretty forward thinking. No, no. And, and that's the thing. The web world, this is 2003, 2004. The web world for horror was a pretty clean slate. I mean, it was just starting out. Everybody was still on AOL and doing geo sites and all that shit. And I, I remember that Fangory was probably a message board. Uh, Bloody Disgusting was just starting out. And, and we, but we looked at Icons of Fright even then as a monthly magazine. We were like, oh, well, let's do four Bravo inside the actor's studio style interviews with people in the industry. And yeah, we'll update about trailers and new movies and stuff like that. But, but let's just put like four solid interviews up a month. And and honestly, we just did it for fun and out of naivety. But but really, it led to everything else. Like and, and that's always been my thing is like if you genuinely love and have a passion for something and you're going to do it no matter what, the reward will come out of that, out of your out of your genuine passion. And I mean, literally, it's just I started interviewing people from the industry that were my childhood heroes. And then it's like, can, can, you, can out, you give me can you give me like a couple standouts? Yeah, let me think. Uh, well, you know, it's like I, I remember being 12 years old and waiting outside a movie theater to go see Leatherface Texas Chancellor Massacre 3. Uh, it was the biggest deal to me at 12. And I waited and I, I asked somebody to pretend to be my older brother so I could get into this rated R movie. And, and you know, I still love that movie. It's, it was my, a mind-blowing experience for me. And in a million years, I didn't think that on one of my first LA visits, I would sit for two hours with the director, Jeff Burr, and get all the inside stories about that. Uh, David Scow, who wrote Leatherface and, and wrote The Crow after that, is is now also one of my dear friends. Like I, I came out here to interview him and we chit chatted and we got along. And then, you know, an event comes up or whatever. It's like, hey, you know, this Fangoria convention's happening. A whole bunch of us are going to meet up beforehand and get drinks at this bar. Why don't you come? And and so now all these people that I, I've interviewed and grew up with. And by the way, I didn't interview them with the intent of like, oh, maybe this will open up my doors in the industry. No, I was fan. just so excited. Yeah. yeah. And and I think people I think people respond when you're genuine and enthusiastic. So it wasn't a far fetched thing to say, hey, I'm back in town. Do you want to come to this bar that we're all going to? And then, and then you get to have this great deep conversation with the writer of Leatherface, and sitting next to you is Clue Gulliger from oh, you know Return of the yeah. Living Dead, and, and you're like, this is crazy. So, yeah, it, so it all happened organically. It's 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 very fringe, you know. So yeah. like when you walk by and you see somebody with a misfit tattoo, or, or it's very, you know, like you you just look, you're like, oh shit, a Hellraiser shirt. Like one of my friends that I that I'm really close with now, we played a show together. We never spoke together. We never spoke. But one day he was wearing a Jesus Web shirt, and like you just oh. automatically walk, you know, you just like, "What's up, man?" It was yeah. <laughs> There's very few genre. That's the only genre of film, just like like uh, metal or punk yeah. too, like that. Yeah. People see a T-shirt and like gravitate to it. There's, just like, there's no other genre that you know nah. someone could wear a T-shirt. Nah, you just you instantly feel that way, especially like fucking Kinship. Texas Chainsaw Massacre three. Like no one. Yeah. Like yeah. you're gonna did did you like that one better I than like two? I fuck with two way more. Uh, I fuck with I, two well, more too. But at the time, I you no, know, I mean it was the newest one. So of course, at the time, I loved it more. I was like, oh my god, this is the best one ever. Uh, little did I, I mean, I didn't know behind the scenes. Oh, they had so much trouble with the censors, and it was taken away from the director. Like I didn't hear those stories until much later. I have an equal love for one, two, and three. Although technically, one is like 
I, I think the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre, even though it's not my favorite movie of all time, and it's not even my favorite horror movie of all time, I think it's hard to dispute that it's not the best horror movie of all time. Indeed, uh, it's it's it, it's a good it's a good debate because it's so. We always mention the big four of horror. Yeah, the big it's, four. It's Texas Chainsaw, Friday the Thirteenth, yeah. Nightmare on Elm Street, and Halloween, and Halloween. Yeah. Well, and I mean Exorcist. <laughs> yeah. That's that would be in my I guess five, that's franchise sure. wise. You franchise know? wise is yeah. definitely like I feel like those are like you know we always talk about the thrash big four, but then we talk about the horror big four. And Hellraiser is like testament or overkill. We'll lump any subject <laughs> into a big <laughs> four they're, format. They're, they're, <laughs> they're like on the outside, and you know what's fucked up? You didn't like the new Leatherface. Oh, I hated it. Yeah. Why? No, I shouldn't. I need to be politically Listen, I need to be politically correct and I'll say cu- no. You don't, you don't need to cut it out. It's totally fine. It's. it's I, I strongly disliked it um, totally for a lot agree. of reasons. There's, there's a lot of reasons. Um, the weird thing about the Chainsaw franchise, because uh, here's the weird thing about that new Leatherface. Technically, Leatherface and Texas Chainsaw 3D have created this trilogy, which is Leatherface, the original Chainsaw, and Chainsaw 3D are now their own three movies. Because there's characters from Texas Chainsaw 3D that are in Leatherface, so that so they made their own weird trilogy, and I just don't like. It's really hard when you go back and try to explain something. It's just basically when with Leatherface, I I liked the gimmick of who will be Leatherface in theory, but there was no satisfactory answer to that. You know, like they set up all these characters that are going to be this iconic killer that you know, and and it's like if it's the big doofy guy, it's obvious, and if it's anybody else. Well, that's lame because that's not who Leatherface is in the original. Like, he, he is a very distinct character. I guess when you go try to rewrite something, uh, it's it's really hard to pull that off. Really, really hard. Uh, I, I For me, like, when I watched it, I, I was just sitting there and I'm like, it came up on VOD and I'm like, fuck. I'm like, finally. So I, I put yeah. it on and I remember I was sick with a fever and I start watching it. And for some reason, I don't. I liked it. I just watched it, and it was done. And to me, it was the best sequel. Like I, for mm-hmm. me, I go one, two, and Leatherface. Like wow, yeah, bold. I know. I didn't, I didn't like it bold. either. Really, I man. got sl- I got slammed so hard. I got to be honest. With you. I think it's the fever. Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> you know what? Cooking your upstairs. I had a one oh one. Yeah, uh. you were hallucinating. <laughs> you thought it was good. Maybe I didn't even see That's- the movie. <laughs> That should be a review on the box. I loved it, but I was sick with the 101. <laughs> all, right. You know? but, uh, all right, so going back, you know, you're getting all the stuff. You you know, you're going back and forth. You're hanging out at the bars with these dudes. Take us from Yeah, there. I mean, so every basically everything kind of – everything snowballed for my – Icons of Fright was done out of love, out of genuine love, and just as a cool experiment to be like, all right, well, I need to – if somebody hires me to do a website, I need to know how to do it. And so it was just for me. And what came out of all that was, I mean, a lot of things. I, I was I was uh, going to the East Coast conventions. I was going to the West Coast conventions, uh, meeting a lot of people that, that I loved in the genre and having genuine conversations with them. And I remember looking at the back of a Fangoria because, I, because to, in my mind, I was like, what would I want to do for a living now that I'm not a traveling musician? And I was like, I would love to write for Fangoria. I wonder how that happens. And so I looked in the back of one of their magazines and it's like, hey, send a writing sample and your journalism degree and this and that. And maybe, you know, and I was like, well, I'm never going back to school to get a degree for anything. So fuck that. I, I guess I'm just never going to write for Sangoria. Um, but <laughs> I, I, that's what I thought at the time. But but basically, I just 
I don't know. I, I, can't, I don't even remember what I did other than a lot. I met a lot of people. I kept doing interviews. I kept being an advocate for the horror genre in general. And when we started Icons of Fright, I, I think there's nothing more exciting than finding a gem or finding something that's interesting or scary or gory or funny or whatever the case is and being able to tell all your friends. You know, it's like, oh, my God, you have to see this. Absolutely. It's so cool. I've never seen anything like it. There's some weird feeling about that. And especially we that, starting... especially back then, because like the internet wasn't what it is now. Now you could send out a yeah. tweet right. and you know, back then it's like, yo, did you see this? You gotta watch it. And then from yeah. there it ping pongs around, you know? It, it felt a little more special back then because of how it gets of access. But you know, we were getting the original hatchet came out in theaters behind the mask, the rise of Leslie Vernon, the original Malevolence, hell, oh, uh, wow. the yeah. Lost, Jack Ketchum's The Lost. There was like all these cool little independent movies coming out, and I was like, "This is good stuff." Like, I know everyone celebrates the '80s and stuff, and that's great, but like, there's cool gems if you look for them. Those, especially the ones that you mentioned, are very distinct, um, almost like homages or like you know, like a carrying of the torches. Especially a movie like Hatchet. Yeah. 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 And I mean, that's the thing is like, there's there's a different type of horror for every fan. And so it all is in my, as far as and that's how I kind of curate the Dread Presents label is like, why can't it be everything? Like, I, I love what A24 is doing. I think they're doing great movies, but they're all kind of the same, for lack of a better term, pretentious festival favorite. <laughs> that's that's what they do. And aside they do that aside from Green Room, I thought Green Room was great. Yeah, was and great. yeah, Green Room's great. Yeah. But I think there's room for all of it. I mean, all those movies I mentioned when we were starting Icons of Fright, those were the ones we were like showcasing while doing interviews. But then there were things like the descent and high tension and then the whole French extremism thing. And it was like, if you're paying attention, there's always cool shit happening in horror every year. What did you, you know, think that, that reflects the times? What did you think of the, of the French extreme? Um, I thought it was interesting. I liked, uh, I liked, I liked high tension a lot. Minus the ending, which I know a lot of people have. Every, with. You, the guy, yes. the, Brian, sitting next to me, that's where we always like debate. For me, I'm like, you gave me 85 minutes of just violence and gore. I'll give you the last five minutes. Well, I, I, <laughs> I still love it. But yeah, just yeah. like you, I can appreciate the whole film, but God, it just takes me so <laughs> yeah. out of it. At the yeah, end. and it's, I mean, I'm always fascinated by, by films like, because it's, I mean, it's that first 80 minutes is a flawless victory. Yeah, like, absolutely. It is, Oh, a really good horror movie and then and then this weird twist that almost it feels tacked on but here's the funny thing uh alex aja the director was on mick garris's podcast post-mortem not too long ago several months ago and he he actually spoke really candidly about it and this is what i found interesting was that luke Besson was a silent producer on it he has no credit on it but he actually helped produce that movie uh and he you know he's the guy that did the professional and mm-hmm. tons of other incredible french films and basically, it wasn't, according to Alex Aja, that wasn't a twist. Apparently, like, in his original cut of the movie, you find out halfway through the movie, it's her. And sorry, spoiler alert, if you haven't seen that section, yeah. I should have mentioned. <laughs> but basically, fuck, fuck he, he said, he's like, he never <laughs> intended that to be a twist. It was supposed to be kind of a mid-movie shift. And in that regard, I'm like, oh, that's interesting. I wonder what how I would have felt about that movie. But basically, he said, hey, look, Luke Besson produced, and he's like, you really need to put that at the ending as a twist. And to, to kind of appease the producer, he did. And I, I think he's always regretted it ever since. <laughs> like, he's always said, yeah, I know people have a problem with it. But that we never set it up as like, oh, here's a big twist now at the ending. But I still don't, I still don't know if I 
buy it. <laughs> yeah, you know what? And, uh, it and feels actually, obligatory. It it just you know a twist for twist sake I'm, kind of a thing. I'm but, completely yeah. you know like when I watched it, I thought it was great. And then later on, I saw Frontiers, and I was like, okay, that was great. But it wasn't until I saw Inside and Martyrs oh, that yeah. just yeah. fucking blew my stack. Like, yeah, my, the top three horror movies for me of like the last. I'll even give you that my top four of like the last like 18 years. I'll go Triangle number four. Number three, I'll do I Saw the Devil. Uh, then wow. t- two is Inside, and one is Martyrs. I think Martyrs just blew me away because it made me feel actually uncomfortable because of, yeah. the, of the, 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 the torture. Uh, because it felt so real, and it felt too long, um, which oh, is yeah. fine. Um, and then the ending, which I didn't even, you don't know the ending or you don't know the plot till the movie's almost over. And you're like, wow, that's fucking so mean. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And, and I have, I have a weird, I have to revisit it actually. Cause I've only seen it once martyrs. That is, I, I like inside a lot. I think that's the weird thing about the French extremism is they're all really great wild experiences, but they're none that I want to revisit. <laughs> like I don't feel the need to see it again. And again, and that's just me because I, I tend to, uh, you know, I mean, that's that's the beauty of horror is there are things that can hit you like a sucker punch by the end. But that's not exactly a journey I want to take again and again and again. <laughs> no, no, it's it's pretty brutal. And, and you know, like, uh, you, you know, you were talking about horror comedies. You know, in the last few years, there's some, been some really great, like Cooties, I thought was great. Elijah yeah. Woods. Cooties is great. Great um, one. And I'll tell you the best one. Tucker and Dale. Tucker and Dale is great, but I'll tell you what's even better than that. Scout's Guide to the Zombie Apocalypse is probably my favorite horror comedy since Return of the Living Dead. Really? I gotta. I can try to remember if I've seen that one. Um, I gotta watch that again. I, I yeah, I gotta like give it, that one. I don't remember. I had that, a one hundred two fever during that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, that one's come up a couple of times because I think Scout's Guide is from the guy that directed Happy Death Day. So I would mean yes. to go back. Yes. Yes, it is actually Chris Landon. Yeah. Uh, who, by the way, I didn't know this until I met him. His dad was Michael Landon of Little House on the Prairie. Oh, uh, that is it. I was like, holy shit. Um, but uh, really quick, Tucker and Dale versus Evil. Totally agree. One of my favorites. One of my favorite bonus features of all time. Uh, have, have you seen the, the Blu-ray of Tucker and Dale vs. Evil? No. no. There's a special feature. It's, I think, 30 or 35 minutes long. It's called Tucker and Dale Are Evil. And it's the entire movie cut down from the perspective of the kids. Oh so when God. you don't see yeah. their interaction, it actually comes off like they're a really creepy horror movie character. See, that's the it benefit is, of physical it's media It's really right badass. There. It's that it's like they made another version of the movie from the other perspective and it's on the Blu-ray. So I love that one. The one you got to look out for that. And again, this is kind of a touchy subject because it's musicals, but I just saw Anna in the, Anna in the apocalypse um, at a festival. It's coming out, I think next month or in December. And it's by the way, don't watch the trailer because the trailer is terrible for it, but it's one of the best horror comedy slash musicals I've ever seen in my life. It is so, so solid. So confidently directed, and the music's actually good. So, what, what kind of music? It's, I guess, it's just pop. I, I guess you could consider it like pop music, but it's really, really solid. And, and I mean, it's everything that I'm kind of sick of. It's like basically a zombie apocalypse set at Christmas time, where you're like, all right, I've seen enough of those. I've seen enough of those. But somehow, it's so fresh and original, and I, I think it really does help that the music is great. Like every song is catchy and great. And it's just a lot of fun. So I just saw that one like a month ago, and I know it's coming out uh, at the end of this year, and, and it's one of my favorites already have for you, horror comedy. Have you seen Mandy yet? 
Yes. Okay, I haven't seen uh, it. Me neither. I it is it. an experience. Okay. It, it's not a movie. It's an experience. <laughs> yeah, because I, I hear a lot of people, or like the people that have been watching it, uh, super positive. Like mostly, like I would say, like eighty or ninety uh, on horror nerds. Every now and yeah. then, there's somebody. Oh, that, yeah. There's always somebody. There's always somebody in there. A lot that, of people whose opinions I respect yeah. are all in favor of this flick. Like all. Yeah. Have good well, things I mean, to say, you know. Yeah, no, it's it's pretty great. It's yeah, the score is terrific, and it's it's Panos Cosmados, the director who, who also dad. did Beyond the Black Rainbow. His dad, his dad made Tombstone Co- and, Cobra and Cobra, yeah, and and Rambo: First Blood Two. Uh, so he comes from quite a quite a lineage there. Royalty, uh, and and I mean his movies are unlike anybody else's. So and Nicolas Cage is a freaking amazing in it. Like I know sometimes he's one one way or the other, a little over the top. He uses him so perfectly. One of my favorite quotes, because you will see Nick Cage go through every emotion known to man in this movie, <laughs> and he does it amazingly. But I saw an interview with him, and they're like, oh, so what were you channeling? And he's like, well, you know, for this first half, I did this. But for the third act, uh, I was trying to do that Jason guy from Friday the 13th. <laughs> and uh, I asked, we asked Panos about it. He was on Shockwaves a few weeks ago, and he's like, oh, yeah, I made him watch Friday the 13th 7. I, I, oh. like, I, want you to, I want you to do this. <laughs> that is fucking funny. So you, if you want to see Cage do his best, uh, Jason, uh, it's in uh, it's in the last 30 minutes of Mandy. All right, I'm, I'm going to definitely And it's amazing. Uh, do, yeah. you, do you think a guy, like let's take Nicolas Cage. Like, so the internet definitely made everything different. Like it made music almost not <laughs> profitable. Mm. Movies, the same thing. Now this yeah. This guy works so much. Do you think it's just someone who used to make $20 million a picture now does these movies for like a million a piece, so he's got to do 20 of them? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, honestly, look, I, I don't know Nicolas Cage's personal life at all. I know, he, I know he had a little financial trouble like 10 years ago, according to the quote-unquote gossip rags. But I think somebody like him... And by the way, he showed up at the Mandy screening that I was at last week, and it was kind of fucking... Like it was pretty cool. Uh, I, I think he he's at a point in his life where he just likes to work. Yeah, and... that, that, that's what I'm saying. Like for for someone like that, like I just feel like you know, and every actor, like Ving Rhames, yeah. like all these people, uh, like now everyone seems to be like working actor because there's so many avenues that movies get released on. Before it was like a movie, and right. then it went to video. Now it's like fucking every. <sighs> digital outlet yeah. red box like there's so many places that you could shoot these movies out to that there's like 20 nicholas cage movies that i probably never even knew existed easy yeah 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 yeah, yeah. yeah and i mean that's because he's he's a name it's so funny the, the way that movies used to get financed was a lot to do with foreign basically you bring like you know there's these film markets a couple times a year and you bring a poster this is like the roger corman way of doing things you didn't make the in full moon charlie van you didn't make the movie yet, but you made the poster and, and a kick-ass title. And canon. And you'd show it. Yeah, and you'd show it to people at the AFM market, the American film market or AFI or whatever. And you'd be like, they're like, oh, that's cool. Nicolas Cage is going to be in this ghost movie. And you're like, yep, uh, you should kick in a million dollars right now and, and you could have a piece of it. And so a lot of times it depends who the star is. Somebody like Nicolas Cage is still a bankable star overseas. And so that's how some of these movies get financed is that, you know, but but even that's changed so drastically in the last couple of years in terms of like foreign markability, everything's like kind of a free for all right now. And so you kind of just have to figure out how people watch movies and, and 
how to get it to the right audience. Absolutely, yeah, definitely. I I, I believe that. Um, now, so go, going back to the Cali thing, when when oh, did yeah. you, when did you realize that you wanted to leave Long Island? Well, I lived in New York my whole life, yeah. and for the most part, I liked it. But uh, what happened was, I started making I started making trips out to Los Angeles primarily because there were some events and conventions and things out here that I were like, oh, it's so cool, I can't miss that. And and at that point, I was starting to take the Icons of Fright website more seriously. Um, and I should mention, this is where the whole Fangoria thing came up. A couple of years into doing Icons of Fright, maybe two, two three years into it, um, I'd struck up a friendship with Tony Timpone, who's the editor of Fangoria. And, and the thing with Tony is, I mean, he's an old school, you know, Italian guy from Brooklyn. And as, as far as ever since I was 12 years old to now, he's been the face of Fangoria to me. He'd always come out at the conventions and introduce the panels and the guests and the trailers. And so at the end of every convention, for since I was 12 on, I would always find him. He was in his suit, always well-dressed and, what, and very what, polite. What, what crime family did he belong to? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Nah. I don't know. But I, I would always go up to him and thank him. I, I'd always like, hey, thank you. I had a great time this weekend. And so by doing that, he he remembered me over the years. He just started to remember me. And then I, I can't even – actually, I do remember. I, I, well, I was doing Icons of Fright, and there was a New Jersey show. And I was friends at the time with Joe Lynch, who was also a Long Island guy. And he had just finished Wrong Turn 2. And oh, yeah, yeah. I, I was having a conversation with, with uh, Tony Timpone. I think I put – the movie The Signal on his radar, the the one from 2007. You told me about that movie, I remember. Yeah, I, I mean, it was a movie I, I saw a test screening of, I fell in love with it, and I basically started screaming to anybody that would listen, you have to check out this movie, it's so cool, it's so different. And so Tony remembered that, and basically when I brought up Wrong Turn 2, out of the blue, he's just like, hey, do you want to host that panel at Fangoria Weekend of Horrors? And up until that point, growing up, it was always either Tony or Michael Gingold in front of an audience interviewing these guys. And so to me, that was like a huge deal. Like, oh, my God, like, wow, I get to go up on stage. And at this point, I played in bands a lot. And, and that was kind of fizzling out. So I was like, oh, this, yeah, I'd love to interview this guy that I'm already friends with. Also from Long Island, making horror movies on stage. And so I did that panel for Wrong Turn 2. And, and then Tony asked me, I can't remember which movie. He asked me to write something for Fangoria. He's like, hey, can you do an interview with this filmmaker for Crazy 8? Hey, can you go to Connecticut and do a set report for the House of the Devil? I, like it was just he started asking me to do these things, and I was like, "Fuck, I didn't need that journalism degree, I guess." So it, it just all happened organically, and then I started writing stuff for Fangoria, and I helped with their social media because those guys didn't know what social media was, and I was like, "You got to post on MySpace every day." And so I ran like the Fangoria MySpace for a while, and extremely long story short sorry no uh, by all i love I, I i seriously like you're filling me in with with what happened which i didn't know you know yeah and i mean again it's it's all like one one thing led to the next i was obsessed with the psycho movies and i was yes. always bummed that there wasn't a lot of information about the sequels the first one is a classic there's dozens of books on it there's documentaries etc but i grew up on part two three and four Me too. and, and mm -hmm. i always wanted to know more about them and so basically what i didn't i didn't even realize this but what icons of fright did was it prepped me for fangoria what fangoria did is it prepped me to make documentary films and what i mean by that is when you do a fangoria article what you're doing is you're trying to bring the reader on set with you so you're 
you're getting the best quotes that you got on set and you're putting them in an order that tells a story. So House of the Devil, I'm, I'm in the corner of this little creepy house drinking my coffee and then comes Ty West to direct a scene. And then I quote Ty West talking about the movie. And what I realized is like, oh, I literally just taught myself editing by editing an article. And so I started, I was like, you know what, I'm going to go and shoot interviews with people from the Psycho movies. I don't know what it will be. Maybe it will be bonus features on a thing. I don't even know how that works. But I'm in touch with them. Who's going to stop me? I just, I need one friend with a camera and we can go and do it. And so I did that. And, and to my surprise, I immediately tracked down Tom Holland, who wrote two, and Nick Garris, who directed four. And I mean, I grew up there, my heroes growing up. And so I, I came out to Los Angeles and I, I literally interviewed them both on one afternoon and we shot video of it all about the psycho movies. And once I did that, once I started it, it's like, shit, it's a real thing now. I guess I better, I guess I'm making a documentary about the psycho movies. You don't, and need, so every, you, you don't need any permission from like, I guess they made the movie so that that's it. There's not like a franchise permission. Like you just do your own thing and release it. <laughs> yeah. I, I learned the hard way. No, I, I did need permission from universal studios. <laughs> if I had any intention Should of using me. the footage or anything. But again, I was naive to this. I just thought I thought they'd be so happy that I did all the work for them <laughs> that they'd be like, great, let's put out a box set. And we'll, you did all the work. This is great. Uh, but again, it was a three year journey and I had to learn it that way. I I, I went back and forth. If, if you had told me, hey, you need 15 grand to make this doc, I would have frozen right then and been like, I can't come up with fifteen thousand dollars. I don't know how that I don't know how to do that. But what I did was I worked for my cousin. He was super supportive. And basically, I'd say, I was like, all right, look, I saved up 500 bucks. I can go for a weekend or a week to L.A., shoot two interviews, and then come up, come back to, uh, to New York and work for another five months and then go do it again. And that's literally what I did. I would just keep contacting people via the Internet and saying, hey, I'm shooting this documentary, blah, blah, blah. I'd go on like IMDb Pro and i try to find like managers' names and i put the legwork in and, and every couple of months i just go and shoot a little bit more of it. And it took me three years. I was going back and forth between New York and L.A. to make this psycho documentary over the course of three years. And then basically when I was at the point where I was going to finish it, um, that's kind of when I decided, I was like, you know what, I, I need to be over there. Like that's, I, I feel, no disrespect to Long Island, but I, didn't, I felt like I didn't have anything there of value. Like, I, I'm going to keep working for my cousin for the next five years, or do I want to try to go live on my own and keep making this documentary stuff and keep interacting with these people that made these films that I love? I could keep learning from them. You ro so, you, ro you rolled the dice, and, and that's it, man. Uh, you know, I, I rolled the dice. I, I did. I, what happened was I knew I was about to finish Psycho Legacy, and I was going to direct never sleep again the nightmare on elm street documentary and so i thought that was my big break i was like great i'm about to put out a documentary i'm gonna go right into the next one this is my excuse to move to la it, it, you know and i i did it i had like i had like two grand to my name which wasn't nearly enough uh but i was like fuck it i'm gonna do it i'm gonna be a working documentary director and then i got here and the never sleep again gig literally got taken from under me <laughs> so wow. uh so I got here. I had no job. I was just finishing my film, my first doc. Uh, I made a lot of poor, a lot of rookie mistakes in terms of selling it. Uh, and at the end of the day, what ended up costing me the most was giving Universal Studios money to use three minutes worth of footage from all oh, the movies. Jesus, it's it's just one of those things that you're like, fuck. I wish I knew a little. I guess I'll do better next time. But then, but then I was here, and I was like, you know what? 
I would rather work minimum wage at a coffee joint or a record store or whatever and be here than be back in Long Island not making any progress in, in my personal life. And so I did it. I rolled the dice. I came out here. And it was hard for the first three years because I ended up working in Amoeba, which was literally just going oh. back to a record store for minimum wage. I remember. I, I, I was reading in between those posts. That you place know? is yeah. like paradise. I, well, yeah, those no, are dark. Those are dark times, though. Those were dark oh, times. But yeah, no, like we're, you know, we're Brian and myself were obviously big music heads, so like we we would just like walk around those aisles, like oh. anytime I went flew out there to visit my friends and stuff, I had to go into that store. And it oh, was it's absolute. It's like a Costco for music. Yeah, that size, it's, like a warehouse. It's a great place. I have nothing but nice. Basically, I really needed to do that, though. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. I needed. Here's the thing. I was I was actually getting a little ahead of myself when I, I first moved here. Uh, I was going to direct documentaries. I think I got a full time gig with Shock T Drop. So I was like, oh, I'm moving on up in the web world. I'm going to make this all happen. It's going to be great. And I, I honestly, you know, it's funny. And this happens everywhere. It happens in Long Island. It happens in L.A. It happens wherever you live. I was in my own little bubble for a little bit there thinking, oh, I'm hot shit because I do all this horror stuff. And the, the most humbling thing is that I had to take a minimum wage job working at a record store where the week that my movie came out, I had to file it in the, in the documentary section. And, and I'm glad I did that because I also met so many incredible people at Amoeba that were so talented, but really into their thing. Like I met like a touring jazz drummer that worked in the jazz department there and like this incredible a vocalist that was really going, going, you know, trying to be like a soul singer and do all this stuff. And what I realized is like, man, everybody here is ridiculously talented and everybody's trying their best to make, make, just do this for a living. And I, I guess, I guess what I'm saying is like Amoeba really humbled me that experience because I, I was barely able to live there, like, like off of it. But every single day I helped a famous person who would come mm-hmm. in and talk to me about movies and music and ask for recommendations. Wow. And so it, it was a really great learning experience. And, and I kind of needed to go through that to appreciate everything going forward, if that makes any sense. Absolutely. Uh, and I think it's good to be knocked down a few pegs every once in a while. To, <laughs> yo, to, it, it definitely. Yeah, absolutely. Cause it happens to every single <laughs> one of us. Yeah. Uh, I think I saw you – I'm trying to remember what documentary I saw you. It might have been like the Friday the 13th one or maybe it was like – I just remember like watching this documentary and then it said Rob G. Like, and you're doing like a talking head thing and I was like, yeah. whoa, what the <laughs> fuck? It's probably, his, it's probably his name was Jason. Yes, that's what it was. Yeah, there's a few. So yeah, once I started doing the documentaries, I couldn't get another documentary off the ground, like a, a full one after Psycho Legacy. But what happened was I met all these incredible people – I actually became really good friends with the guys that did uh, Never Sleep Again, ironically enough. And that was they great. were in, yeah, I mean, it, you know, I, I told this story before because he's now my producing partner on all my documentaries. Uh, his name is Buzz Wallach, and he's an incredible DP and a producer, and he just directed his first feature a lot younger than me. So it kills me that he's so ridiculously talented so young. Uh, but what happened was I moved to town, and he knew me only by reputation. But he actually genuinely, this never happens. He genuinely felt bad knowing that I was up for Never Sleep Again and didn't get it and that him and his team got it. So he took me out for coffee and basically said, hey, man, I, you know, you seem like a really good dude. And I didn't know that you had anything to do with this project. And, 
basically he extended the olive branch. He's like, you know, if you want to work on it, we'll figure something out because that's kind of not fair that you moved all the way out here thinking you were going to do this thing and then it didn't work out. But like, but we respect you. And if you want a piece of it, that's great. And, and it just meant so much to me that he even like, no, nobody has any obligation to do that sort of thing. No, but it, it meant so much that he did. Um, it's, and it's, I, I just, yeah, I was going to say sorry, it just, it's one of those things where like you hear stories like this a lot and it's for people who are just not douche. You know, they're, yeah. not, they're not douchebags, and you basically, like, you know, he probably saw something in you and was like, man, this guy seems okay, and, and it's just, it's like the ultimate, like, karma, you know, yeah. point right there where it's like, I, for them to, to, to offer that to you is huge, but it, I think it also speaks a lot on, like, the type of person that you are and, and definitely, like, the, the genuine vibe you have for the material that they feel like it's, it's an asset and they would rather, you know, ha- you know work with you. Yeah. And I mean, that led to Buzz and I ended up doing tons of bonus features for like, we worked on all these like Roger Corman releases. And like, you know, I worked on the Halloween 2 and Halloween 3 Blu-rays. Like, we just started getting called in to do these interviews, because there's a big difference when you're watching an interview on one of these discs between somebody that's literally just reading questions off a board and or someone that has such love and enthusiasm for this project you worked on that it makes you open up more. And and so I became the go-to. I don't get credit a lot, but I've worked on hundreds of Blu-ray releases as the interviewer. I'm, I'm usually the guy that goes and interviews these people about Evil Dead 2. I worked on that disc. Um, they pay. As in, long, you know, like, it's, it's you're, you're doing all those movies that we watched as a kid, finally. Yep. Like, you know what I'm saying? You're like, holy shit. Everything that I finally watched is, is like now turning into some sort of career for me to be able to do this. You know, it's like the ultimate. It's like I said, it's it's the flip side to like, you know, making it with music. It's like, OK, well, now I get to, you know, do the, the other passion that I have, which is uh, movies. And I get to make a living out of it. You know, it's great. Yeah. I mean, it's there's something we you know, somebody calls you up and says, hey, do you want to can you interview Scott Spiegel, the writer of Evil Dead 2, about Evil Dead 2 for the Evil Dead 2 Blu-ray, like, tomorrow? And I'm like, yeah, of course. And it's like, you're like, wow, I get to sit with the writer of this movie I watched a hundred times growing up and really ask him questions about it. And so, yeah, it's been a total blessing, and I'm really, really lucky that I got to do any and all of that stuff. What what did Real quick, what do you think of the show? Because I think... Ash vs. Evil Dead might have been almost as good as the movies. I thought those three seasons were some of the best TV that I've seen ever. Yeah, it was great. I, I really loved it. And I, I was lucky enough to get to see, I think it was the first two episodes a little bit early. Uh, and it was hilarious. I, I felt like I had the the golden ticket. Word got around town that I had the first two episodes and every director you could think of hit me up. <laughs> like, yo, man, I want to see that Ash vs. Evil Dead. And so I, I had a little screening party here in my living room with like 10, 10 horror directors that in town. And we all just cheered and laughed our asses off. And we were just so excited that Ash was back because it was one of those things where it's like, I don't know if we'll ever see one of these again. And I, I like the Evil Dead remake, but it was kind of like, I thought but, was, you know, you want to you see Bruce Campbell. <laughs> you yeah. do. I thought, I thought the remake was great. They did a good job. Just the brutality of yeah. the remake, I like, but obviously it was devoid of all the humor. Like there was no. Yeah, it's cool that they took that angle though, because if they tried to duplicate yeah. the humor and stuff, it did, it wouldn't work. Yeah. You know what I mean? Well, you know what, and that's and that's what the original Evil Dead is. That the the people mix up 
Evil Dead 2 and Army of Darkness with what Evil Dead is, but it's not it's not what that first movie is. And I always say my my remake test is if you could do a double feature with the original and the new one and it's not the exact same movie and you have a great time, then that's a good remake. Mm-hmm. So the original Evil Dead and the Evil Dead remake, that's a great double bill. The original Maniac with the Maniac remake, Holy that's a cool shit. double bill. Yeah. That's, that that's the way one. to test. That's the way to test a great remake is I, if you could pair it up. You know, I cannot believe how good that Maniac that's remake was. That's my favorite was. remake I think. Yeah. You take any that, remake, that one's really solid. Fuck. They even did it on the other coast, you know? Yeah. One was New York, one was Cali. Sure. When I found out Elijah Wood was attached to it, this was before I knew he was cool. I was like, yo, <laughs> how is that even a yeah. thing? Joe Spinelli's like a yeah. monster. Like a monster. Like <laughs> yeah. a legit yeah. monster. <laughs> For real. You know? But, um, but it's perfect. Up. You got a little hipster dude in L.A. That's yeah. that's modern. That's the modern maniac. Killer I, soundtrack. And I was like, too. Fucking great. Score. Very much in the POV work because you feel like when he when you have the POV, he's like this killer and this monster. But when that scene in the bathroom when that dude chumps him, mm-hmm. that's the yeah. real character. Yeah. Yeah. You know, he's yeah. like wiping his hands on him and shit. You Any know? movie that uses uh, Q Lazarus, Goodbye Horses, too, and it, they, it's in that. Is it? Yeah, there's yeah, one great, scene. Great. I'm great. always a fan. Um, yeah, so moving forward, you know, I guess you parlay all this stuff, and then from there, uh, you started doing stuff for what, Blumhouse, right? Um, well, I worked for Fairnet for a while. I was doing, um, that was the big leap after Amoeba. I'm working at a record store. I'm doing these behind-the-scenes features. I'm not really making a lot of money, but at least I'm just speaking by. And then my good friend Lawrence Raffle was, like, the president of Fearnet which at the time was both a website and a cable network. Yes. And yeah. great channel. And, and bless him. I was struggling and he, what he did for me and I'll never forget. It was, I, you know, he knew that I was struggling. He said, Hey, look, I, I don't have anything for you right now at Fearnet, but we could always use freelance writers. So I'll tell you what, give me one article a week. I'll pay you 50 bucks an article or whatever, 70, 75 bucks, 50 bucks an article. And every month you'll get an extra two, 300 bucks. You don't even have to pitch me. I know that whatever you write will be fine. And he gave me that opportunity and it was great. It gave me a few extra hundred bucks. And a few months into that, he just said, Hey, something opened up here. We need, we need an extra hand on deck to help with the kind of like the maintenance of the website, like kind of like tech stuff, which ties into the, the actual cable network. And so I started that gig for a while. And that was great because, yeah, I was doing website stuff, but like with any job, you want to prove that you could do everything. And so I said to them, I looked at their schedule of what was going to play, for example, some of the Saw sequels. And then I said, hey, you know, I I know the writers, Marcus and Patrick, do you want to do like an exclusive interview and we'll air it before Saw plays? And they're like, great. You you know them. You could do that. And it it became a thing where I just started bringing people into – uh, to the office when I knew their their movies were playing and producing quote unquote original content that and great great yeah angle. and so yeah I mean that's the thing is you gotta you gotta find how do you make yourself valuable no matter what <laughs> you know it's like here's what I could bring to this team so so I did that for a year uh, Fear Night got folded by Lionsgate whole big corporate thing and then Blumhouse Productions wanted to start a website basically a horror site under the Blumhouse name. And myself and my Shockwaves co-host, Rebecca McHenry, got called in to do it. And we basically uh, ran it. She was editor-in-chief. I was, uh, I don't know, whatever the title is below that, editor. 
uh, managing editor. And um, we ran that website for about a year, year and a half. Um, and it was cool, but we, you know, we, to be candid, we didn't technically work for Blumhouse. Um, we worked out of their offices and it was definitely more of the appearance of like, Hey, they work for Blumhouse and they have a website, but we were basically contracted by a New York company called Red Seat to run this website. And they like licensed the name Blumhouse, uh, because they thought they could make a million bucks off that name, which they didn't. And they shut us down. So that's the super short version of what happened there. How long has Blumhouse been around? Like the the actual company? I feel like Mm. it hasn't been that long. I think I want to say, well, Jason Blum has been producing movies since college, but I want to say that the original Paranormal Activity is the first official Blumhouse movie. And that was, it's been about 10 years because that was 2007. Are you? I, I think that was the movie that he started the company Blumhouse Productions with. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Because I, I know that, that that was like a big hit. Oh yeah. Um. And I mean, all those sequels. I haven't seen one second of it. But <laughs> any of them? Nah. I can't fuck. I don't. You know. I don't like super natty shit. Nah. Nah. I. I don't. You know what? I'll tell you this because I also I've now only seen the first two. I I saw the first one when it came out and I hated it. I just I just hated it. But that was because I wasn't crazy about found footage to begin with. And I felt like it was a lot of nothing at the time. Um, I, I get it now. I get like if you're in an audience and there's people around you that are very uh, kind of sensitive to that sort of stuff, it plays as a good audience thing. But what impresses me about that franchise is I finally went to two and they get better. Like two, two actually makes one a better movie. I agree. <laughs> because they, they rewrite the mythology and apparently they do the same thing with three. And to me, it's like, if you can like retroactively fix the last movie, that's some genius shit you're pulling right now. <laughs> but, but really for me, Blumhouse took off when they did insidious. That, that was when I mm-hmm. took them really serious. Cause I'm like, great. They're not doing sound footage anymore. They're going for narrative, scary movies. And, and I've always loved James. Like I, I've known James since the first saw, yeah. And I saw, I saw he's, you. I remember you posting. I, I think you know maybe some Facebook pictures or whatever. And I was like, oh shit, that's James Wan. Yeah, he's the same dude since the original. I mean, he's ridiculously wealthy, but he's the same dude since the first song. Uh, what? What? Did, what? Did, what did, to do great stuff. What did he have to do with Upgrade? He uh, actually, I don't think he he may be a producer. I right? know, but it's Lee Winnell, who is the co-writer, co-creator. Saw wrote and directed upgrade holy shit what a fucking movie yep and yeah and lee yeah i loved i saw that in uh i actually caught that in england uh, a couple weeks ago and it was you know like that and the guest would be like the perfect double bill god i love and maybe i love the guest. maybe the original robocop is a triple bill and then you got (laughs) i I, yeah honestly like i got that vibe from upgrade obviously because of you know uh, you know the, the the plot somewhat but i remember watching it like just maybe like a week or two ago, and I'm thinking the whole time I'm watching this movie, I'm so excited, and I'm thinking like of all the shitty movies that are playing in the fucking theater right now that people are going to see, right. and this movie came in and totally out, no the theater radar. around me, so I, you know I had to wait for Amazon. So I watch it at home, and me and my girlfriend are watching it, and I'm like, this movie is so fucking entertaining yeah. how yeah. like more people need to see this and then i see the budget's like three million maybe if mm-hmm. if, if that mm-hmm. and it looks it definitely under five yeah it looks like a 20 million dollar movie 
Yeah, Lee, Lee is – like, I don't know if you know much about Lee Winnell, the director. I don't. But, but man, he is – he 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 wrote all of James' stuff. So he wrote he wrote and starred in Saw. He's actually the other guy, not Carrie Elwes. He usually writes and stars in the movies. So he wrote Saw one through four, one through three, and then he wrote and starred in Insidious. So he's written all the Insidious movies as well. Um, he did Dead Silence as well with with James. Um, and he's you know he's the guy with the glasses in the Insidious movies, the younger um, dude. And he, I think he directed Insidious three. That was his first directorial uh, project. And now Upgrade, to me, is just, like, such a leap forward as, as, as a director. Like, there's some ambitious, crazy shit in that movie. Unbelievable. Like, the the sneezing part? Yeah. Oh, like, yeah, I'm yeah. like, holy shit, that movie was so goddamn good. Yeah. Uh, and I'm a, I'm a big Saw guy, you know? Like, I know a lot of people, I don't know, some people just don't like it, but to me, I think... We were talking about Big Four of horror. Right. I think yeah. that's the next. I think the Saw franchise is better than the Hellraiser franchise. Saw is really solid, man. It. Yeah, no, Saw is a solid franchise. I just am impressed with how they feel like <laughs> they feel like they were plotted all along, and they weren't. Like the fact that they keep they were cranking those out one a year, yeah, with no idea what the with no idea what the next one was going to be. So. The fact that each one feels like it was planned from the start is one of the most is one of the modern miracles of franchise. <laughs> the, it, the only uh, the only other time they did that was Friday Thirteenth, and even those are more that they were just kind of remaking the last one again, you know. But but like, how did they crank them out so fast? And, one a, well, yeah, one and, a year. Yeah, it one, was incredible. One a year for like Every seven, October, for seven they years. Put out a new one, yep. and and then Jigsaw came out, and I'm like, I. Gotta see how the fuck. I still haven't do this. seen that yet. It, it was pretty. I, good. I have yeah. not seen that one yet. <laughs> it was okay. I mean, you know, yeah. I, I'm, I'm a like I said, it's. I watch everything from like the Hellraiser ones. I even like the last Hellraiser to like the Wrong Turn franchise. Like anything that has multiple entries, I watch. And um, yeah, this I, I think Saw is just quality, man. Quality yeah. stuff compared to, you know, once you start going getting so many sequels attached to a franchise. All bets are off. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's you're always. Yeah, you're yeah. just gonna get you know quality quality control is just gonna fall through. But I think they they were consistent with that idea and the stuff that they show. Like the you know if you're into if you're into the first one, you're gonna be into the seventh one basically. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so yeah. um, you, know, you said you were working with your friend Rebecca. Oh yeah, over we Rebecca and I were already doing uh, a podcast called Killer POV over on Geek Nation. And then we got kind of uh, drafted into doing the Blumhouse website. What was that? Uh, I'm sorry. What was the killer POV thing? Um, like, what was the the? It's ba- it's basically shockwaves. What happened was okay. um, there was a there was a new network called Geek Nation, and they had a studio here in Van Nuys, uh, and they were looking to launch a bunch of podcasts. And I I believe it. Ironically enough, I think it was the director of Never Sleep Again, Andrew Cash. He was doing some some maintenance there with their software and they were like hey we're thinking of launching a horror show who do you think we should have as the hosts and with zero hesitation he's like rebecca mckendry elric Kane, and rob beluzzo and they're like really and i'm like okay and so they brought us all in and uh rebecca and i knew each other a little bit because she did stuff for fangoria and i did stuff for fangoria and um but i had never kn- i didn't know elric at all he was just like this this you know wacky eccentric very uh, very vocal guy from New Zealand that like had a passion for movies 
And, um, and I was like, you know what? I don't want to know you. Let's, we have good chemistry already. Let's just talk while we do the show and take it from there. And so we started this show called Killer POV, which was a weekly podcast. And it was, it was basically, it's basically shockwaves. We, we would talk about movies we've seen in the last week, old or new. And then we would bring a guest on and kind of interview the guests and kind of talk about their whole career, you know, whatever their latest film is, but how they got to that point and why they love movies. Because most of us, especially at this age, kind of came up, you know, in the VHS generation. And we have very similar stories of movies that kind of scarred and inspired and scared us. So uh, that was what that show was. And we did it for quite a while, I think 140 episodes. Damn. And then we were at, we were already doing the, we were doing the website for Blumhouse and Blumhouse was, thinking well red seat the, the digital company wanted to launch a podcast network and it just made logical sense for us to be like well let's just do we were kind of unhappy with geek nation at that point because after three or four years we we didn't really evolve we didn't there wasn't much more to do so we basically rebranded the show as shockwaves and did it at blumhouse uh and it took a couple of episodes to kind of get into the groove uh, but basically, once we started um, doing episodes, recording them at the Blumhouse offices, Ryan Turek, who is one of my oldest friends, started sitting in and he unofficially became our fourth host. And uh, Ryan used to, you know, Ryan worked at Fangoria. We have a, a very similar background. He ran Shock to Drop for a while. And now he's a development executive at Blumhouse. He just produced and was responsible for a little movie called Halloween that they're oh. about to do. Oh, really? So Never heard of it. To see, yeah, to see <laughs> him get to do that is also Matrix level awesomeness. Bananas! What do you think? Like, I'm fucking so excited for yeah, this movie, me too. Um, especially since Halloween Resurrection. I'm is, avoiding trailers. Though. I I saw the trailer. I I couldn't help it. I didn't want to see yeah. the first one, but I don't want to see any more. I, I couldn't because... help it. I watched the first the second. Man. The second trailer is very spoilery, but I, it's good. Is it? it's, yeah, because I, I, I caved. I caved, <laughs> and, and I was like, you know what? Fuck it. I, I've been listening to Consequence of Sound has a podcast. Uh, it's like a special just called Halloweenies, and these guys are fucking. So they go through all the movies leading up to, you know, like every month. So they started in February, and, and they just man for three hours they just have so much information on all the movies and they just released the resurrection episode so they got me at a fever pitch man i'm uh, and i love danny mcbride i think he's gonna be yeah. great uh david gordon green like just i'm so in and like i said it's funny i'm such a horror fan because resurrection was the art it was arguably the worst horror movie, worst sequel, worst movie maybe ever. Like I can't think of a, of another movie besides Halloween Resurrection that was like it's a complete terror. And and here's and here's how fucked we are up, how fucked up we are as horror fans. I agree with you, and I still saw it twice in the fucking movie theater. <laughs> yeah, I think I've seen it way more than twice. I went to Brookhaven. Remember that movie theater? Actually, no, you're you're, you're a Nassau guy. So yeah, yeah. I, I saw it in a packed theater, and it was just like. I, I mean, and I listen. I love Buster Rhymes, but <laughs> yeah. holy shit! Yeah, yeah. Like what the fuck? And yo, Rick Rosenthal directed it, and yeah. I think Halloween too. The older I get, I'm I lean more to like. If you give me a choice, I'm gonna pick Halloween too. That's oh, the one I grew one? up on. Yeah. Really? Yeah. 
Lately, wow. Lately, I'm I'm feeling two I love over it. one. Don't get me wrong, but yeah. wow, that's a bold call. I it just more happens. Um, it's more it's more tense. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, he's chasing her kind of sort of through the hospital. Right. Um, so many Severely more severely understaffed hospital. Yeah. <laughs> they can't even Halloween turn on night. the lights. It is Halloween night. <laughs> Yeah, well, look. you could you could forget about Halloween too because it didn't happen anymore. <laughs> yeah, true. That, what do you think of that angle? Um, I hear the funny thing about horror fans. I'm fine with it. Who like, yeah. you know, what's funny. What's been funny about Halloween is that I've gotten a little more insight before it's gotten out there because obviously I I do a show with Ryan and you know he he's told me a little like I remember him saying oh Danny McBride's writing with David Gordon Green. I'm like whoa, I didn't see that coming. I I remember seeing the first trailer. Uh, a couple of months before they actually put it out. He's like, this is the trailer. And when I saw it, basically it's like, okay, remember that movie that you love from 40 years ago that is undeniably a a horror masterpiece? What if somebody made a movie that was a sequel to that and felt exactly like that? I was like, all right, I'm all in. I I don't need all all these other stories because... It can't be much worse than the Rob Zombie ones right. <laughs> or Resurrection oh. or all these other directions they took it. Why not take a um, crack at it? Right? Yeah. 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 I mean, like, you know, Leatherface, Texas Chainsaw has like eight versions going. You know, there's the, the Michael Bay remake versions. They're the Sawyers. They're the Hewitts. Yeah. Now they're the prequel Leatherface version. Like, there's just when that's horror for When it. you're getting the territory of like a seventh or eighth movie, you know what I mean? Like the continuity is the least. Of you, it's already gone. So why yeah. not? Why not take a well, crack at it? I'll tell you just this: just make a good one. Exactly. <laughs> That's all. all we want. I I respected six for trying to do something with the shit that was in five. Five, they yeah. bring in the, the the fucking cowboy guy with the cigarette. Oh man! I like what was going on there. So from what I understand, the director was like, "Yeah, we'll figure it out." Ah, <laughs> uh, so yeah, the. the- the, yeah, the director of five was a very, very French dude that yes. d- didn't have any explanation whatsoever. D- didn't have any explanation, but the dude from six picks it up, and I think he tried to do a really good story. Paul Rudd's in it. Like, I think they tried to do something with it. I mean, obviously, it wasn't the best movie, but... Um... You know what? I, I After we hang up, I'm going to send you... This is one of my favorite interviews I've ever done. I interviewed the screenwriter, Dan Farrens, from Halloween 6 oh, cool. in the early days of, of Icons of Fright. And his, he has a passion for it, and he really did try to make it all work. Uh, everything that had, came before, stuff from 5. His original ideas and script are so top-notch, and what will infuriate you is everything that got nixed when it made it to the screen. Um, a, a small example is... Um, you know, Doctor Dr. Loomis is in it. It's Donald Pleasance, and they reveal halfway through the movie that Doctor Wynn, which is a character from the original movie, yep. is actually behind everything. He's he's the man, you know, he's he's the man behind the hat and all that stuff. And Dan had said, "I wrote it in mind with Christopher Lee because yes. Christopher Lee was the original choice for Loomis, and he turned it down, and he always regretted that he turned it down." And he was really good friends with Donald Pleasance and always they did one little movie together called Deathline, but they he always wanted to work with him. And Dan is like, could you have imagined Donald Pleasant's last movie? Because he died while they made it. Yep. His last movie is him versus Christopher Lee. That's a Halloween movie. 
it would have elevated it beyond what it became. And the studio said, uh, Christopher Lee's too old. Nobody cares about him. We're not hiring him. Now, you, you're, you're... Four, four years later, Lord of the Rings, Star Wars prequels. Yeah. Uh, Christopher Lee's bigger than ever. So it's just so funny how these decisions get made. Isn't it funny? Because like, like you're, you see some of that, I'm sure. Like, oh, yeah. How does... <laughs> like, what is it about some of these decisions? Are, are there? Is it a financial thing? Is it people that just don't have the love for the project? They don't understand it? Like... How do, like how does something like that fall through the like, yeah there, there's a lot of factors part of it's financial uh, a big part of it believe it or not and and it's and if you're if you're able to if you're, the more people that are involved in any project yeah I got you the more they want a piece of it they want their idea they want their thumbprint on it it's it's imagine being in a band with slipknot 25 people <laughs> instead of because you're talking about all the producers, the director, the screenwriter has no power at all, but you have all these producers and some of them. And here's the thing, you and I, we, we're creative guys. So tomorrow we can get up and pick up our guitar and we could probably write a new riff, probably. But there's people in the business that are not creative at all. And so when they get an idea in their head, they're incapable of letting it go. Because it's so few and far between that an actual good idea happens. Whereas you and I can come up with one every day. You're right. Like we, we can literally come up with a new song tomorrow. Yeah. Because we're creative guys. And so that is why some of the most ridiculous, stupid ideas make it into movies. I don't know if you've ever seen An Evening with Kevin Smith, which is terrific. Uh, no. You Just go on YouTube and look up An Evening with Kevin Smith, Superman Lives, oh. which is his entire story about how he wrote Superman for Tim Burton. I want to see John that. Peter, yeah, John Peters, the producer, was obsessed with him fighting a giant spider. And he's like, <laughs> but why? And he's like, I just want a giant spider, all right? You. And so, and, and then a year later, a movie called Wild Wild West came out. <laughs> John Peters produced it. And uh. at the end... Will Smith fights a giant spider. <laughs> oh, man. You're right. So and, that one idea had to make it somewhere, you know? It, wow. it, and it bombed. And on top yeah. of that, I remember watching the documentary um, on the whole Superman thing. And, yeah. And Kevin Smith told that story on there. So yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, man, that documentary, you saw that one, right? Oh, yeah, I love it. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. So between that, I saw that. The same day that I saw the Roger Corman one, the, the Fantastic oh, Four one. That was great. Oh, oh yeah, that's a great one. Have you seen Corman's World? No. I did that see that, I think. Yeah. That's yeah. another great documentary just about Roger Corman. Mm -hmm. uh, Jack Nicholson's in it. There's some great stories about those guys. Mm. Um, all right, so moving along with the Rob G story here. So, so basically, <laughs> you're, you're, you know, you get the, you know, you rebrand with Shockwaves, um, and and how did the guests come about? Like, you, is it just like people contact think, you? No, I mean, it, it, we've been very fortunate. I think we were doing it on Killer POV, the previous show, and so basically, it literally came down to, I mean, you know, you you meet up once a week, and between the three, now four of us all those relationships and connections and people I've crossed paths with over the years, I, I can now just email or call and be like, Hey, you know, we're doing a show this week. I like, I had met Savage Steve Holland, for example, the director of better off dead Hell one yeah. crazy summer and how I got into college. And he, uh, he, he, I met him when I moved to town and I basically, I don't want to say stocks cause that's not the appropriate word, but 
I definitely tracked him down through mutual friends and insisted that I interview him over a beer. And we got together and one beer turned into several and we hung out for like several hours. And he was just telling me all these amazing stories. And he's a huge horror fan. And he was born, and he was born in Freeport. So he's he's originally a Long Island Yo, guy. Yo, shout out, for, shout for out. For a short, for up until he was like three years old, and then he left. But but you know what I mean? It's like you, you meet somebody. We'll claim him though. Yeah, we'll, <laughs> we'll still claim him. <laughs> but yeah, you you meet somebody, and you have all these weird, fun little connections, and then so of course I'm like, hey guys, we got to get Savage Steve Holland on the show, and they're like, why? He didn't direct a horror movie. He's like, no, but he loves horror movies, and I just think it'd be fun to talk to him about horror. Yeah, because he doesn't get to talk about it that much. And so, so it's, it's literally based on people that we interact with. A lot of times it's people we work with. Now we're in a position where, because, because we're doing the show for Blumhouse, of course we're going to get Jordan Peele. I, I assume Danny McBride at some point will, will probably be on the show. It, we're very fortunate in that regard that we can just kind of ask people. Or The one that shot, like, like two weeks ago, we had Panos on who directed Mandy. And that came to us through a publicist like that was just like, hey, you know, he's going to be in town. Would you want him to show? Like, absolutely. Uh, you know, that'd be a great interview. And we were very nervous because he uh, he he's, you know, he's an odd guy, but but loves movies. And he had never done a podcast before. So he's coming in and we're like, oh, man, I hope he's all right. And, and he was he was great. But immediately after we were done, he's like, oh, yeah, I listen to you guys all the time. <laughs> it's like, well, I wish you told us that before because we're like all nervous that, that you didn't know how the podcast thing worked or, you know. Yeah, it's, it's, so, always, it's always strange when you talk to someone who's never even listened to a podcast. Like we, I, I've yeah. done that. I don't know if on, on this show, maybe the other show, because they say a bunch of shit. And then after they're like, yo, can you edit out everything? <laughs> <laughs> it's like, wait, what? He's like, you know what? What do you mean? This is a show. I would like. I mean, I will, but I don't want to. <laughs> you know. Um, wh- yeah. So, did you enjoy Get Out? Because I, I loved it. Yeah. Oh yeah, I loved it. Absolutely loved it. Yeah. Uh, and I was so blown away by. It. I got to, I got to see it a little early, and I really didn't know much about it other than that that obviously Jordan Peele was doing it. Uh, but I had a sense just based on Key and Peele, they always did really fun horror skits their affinity for the horror genre was super obvious in a lot of their skits. And so I'm like, I have a feeling this guy knows the genre really well. And yeah, that movie really blew me away. And it's one of those movies that I love going back to and watching over and oh over my again. God. It, going back to it, I just recently rewatched it and knowing what you know and why everyone's acting the way they're acting. Yep. It just yep. makes it so much cooler. Yeah. Cause you're like, Oh shit, this is bananas. And it's so smart. And then at the end, I thought it was something, but then when it turned out to be something even other than something, I'm like, "Fuck, this is." Yeah, and I think good. I, I sent you that article that like Buzzfeed yes. did with all. Yeah, it's yeah. great to watch it with that in mind too. Yeah, yeah, very much so. Um, all right, yeah. So I, I mean, shit, you, you're getting a lot of great guests, and then from there, like, um, how do you jump into the the epic, you said epic films, right? Epic. Yeah, epic pictures. Basically, I mean, it was re- it's a really weird thing. I uh, Is it, uh, so be- that's a brand new company, right? No, Ep- Epic has actually been around for about 10 years. Okay. Um, and they've done, you know a lot of their cult stuff. They did Big Ass Spider, they did Tales of Halloween, they did oh, Turbo shit. Kid, they did really? Nina Forever. They, they've done a lot of cool, quirky movies, and they've been around for 10 years now, going on 11. And what happened was the Blumhouse website folded, 
um, the podcast went on, but we were not doing the website anymore. And to be quite candid with you, I was really over it anyway, because I've been a web writer since 2004, and I really don't know how many more ways I can write about how awesome John Carpenter's The Thing is. Like, I, <laughs> I don't I don't have that article in me anymore. Like, right. you should know by now. So it was kind of a challenge <laughs> figuring out, well, what the hell else am I going to talk about now, you know? And so I was looking for a change. Um, I've been working on a documentary, technically my second feature-length one, and it's all music-oriented, so we'll, we'll touch on that at the tail end if you'd like. Sure. But I've been definitely. working on a documentary, and I was going to finish it up, and then, um, yep, mixtapes. Yeah, and then mixtapes. Epic Pictures Epic Pictures reached out to me, uh, Shaked Berenson, who, is, who was one of the co-founders of the company. And what happened was when they were making Tales of Halloween, I was on set for everyone's segment because it was directed by neil marshall and mike mendez and axel carolyn and uh dave parker uh paul solid like all these people that i've been friends with and they're like who is this guy that keeps showing up to set and they're like oh, that's shrub g he's just friends with all the directors and so they remembered me from that and basically brought me in and said look the the dread central website was in danger of going under last year so we came in and bought it uh so they own the dread central website uh and they're like but epic as a company has been around for 10 years and we're mostly known for genre, although we also do family films and dramas and cartoons and things of that sort. So basically from here on out, any of our horror titles are going to be Dread Central Presents. And we need somebody to kind of run that, somebody that knows the genre. You know, would you want to do that? And I'm like, of course. I mean, that's great. Man, that's, let, uh, let, let's just take great a opportunity. Let, let's just take a minute here. Mm. You know, <laughs> like this is like, I, I you know, I, I don't want to overplay it because I don't really know exactly what it consists of. Maybe it it sounds cool, but to me, like this is like you left Long Island, you leave to go do something, and this like you're, I don't know, like this is like this is it. Like I, I that news, like it, it just sounds so amazing to yeah. me. Like you're, I think it's such a great opportunity. Or am I insane? I uh, know. I I gotta tell you, well, it was a great opportunity. What I didn't. I mean, look, like any job, because a job is always a job, there were tremendous challenges and learning curves that really, I, I thought I'd maybe had made a mistake in the first couple months. Oh, boy. Uh, I take but, that back. <laughs> no, no, no. But I mean, I think, I think you have that when you suddenly are thrust with a lot of responsibility, uh, you know, you, you have a lot of doubt. You're like, shit, am I good enough to do this? Is this the right thing? And I found my footing pretty quick, and I'm really happy with what I've done. It's still a lot of hard work, but I did have a really cool epiphany. It was one of the harder days where I was, you know, juggling a lot of stuff, working with a lot of different filmmakers and personalities. Uh, again, although I'm an acquisition guy, I told you guys off record uh, that I I do everything. I pick a movie, I call theaters and try to book it. I write the pitch document for VOD because nobody knows these films better than I do. And I fully produce the physical release that we do ourselves. We have no label that's doing a Blu-ray. We are producing that in-house from start to finish. And all of that was really important to me. And I was having one of those days where I was, I was kind of like the weight of it was really hard. And I'm on, I don't know, I'm flexing around on Facebook. And I'm seeing posts from all the people I went to high school with who, you know, wouldn't have they they wouldn't even talk to me if i walked down the street today they, <laughs> it, they i had i had a tough time in high school 
Nobody gave a shit about me. They were quite mean. And here they are, still in Long Island, still going to the same bar every Saturday night, still doing the same jobs and the same thing. And I stood up and looked outside my window. And my office is on Sunset Boulevard in Hollywood. And I had to stop for a second and be like, you know what? I have an office on Sunset Boulevard in Hollywood, California, where I get to work for an independent movie company picking horror movies out. Fuck all those people from high school. I fucking made it. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. slice it. No matter how hard this gets or continues to get, I fucking made it. That's so, beautiful. and you, you, deal with it. you basically did what what a lot of people, including myself, like you know, um, you you basically said fuck it. I'm gonna roll this dice. I'm gonna go over there. You were you were basically like the girl in the Fallen Angel video for Poison. <laughs> you know, you <laughs> get, Axel Rose getting off. The, oh yeah, the Axel Rose getting off. Yeah, you you basically went and and you tried something. And may it go away ten years, twenty years from now, whenever it is, like you, you fucking did it. Yeah, you know. Yeah, I, and you know what? I actually, I completely left out a part that was so porn piv- pivotal. To, no, not the porn part. That, that <laughs> we'll keep. We'll keep that a secret for a little while longer. That's when times uh, were tougher than me, but uh, <laughs> there was there was a really dark period there. No, I have to tell you, I I ended up in acquisitions. There was a period for a couple of years where I really, really, really wanted to be in the TV world. And I was gunning hardcore for TV, for, to be a TV writer. And it didn't work out the way I wanted it to. And I did absolutely end up where I was supposed to end up. But basically, and, and this is just to go back to what I was saying at the beginning, where if you have genuine enthusiasm and love for something, and you don't want anything out of it other than to keep loving that thing, you will, you will force things into your life. And a perfect example is, uh, when I was 15 or 16, Nirvana was my favorite band of all time. I loved them so much. And somehow I got to be at the Unplugged show for MTV in the audience because I just, I just like, I saw it and I made it happen. That's the way I look at it. And it was one of those things where I was like, all right, I, I love this thing so much. It ha- I have to make myself a part of it. And so when I moved out here, I love Dexter more than anything in the world. It was my favorite show of all time. Uh, I'd watched the first four seasons religiously with my cousin back in New York. And I moved here just as the fifth season started. And pretty early on, I was going to the New Beverly where they do a lot of revival screenings. It's current. It's owned by Quentin Tarantino now. But it's, it's where I see a lot of great movies. And I was wearing a Dexter shirt. And one of the programmers there is like, you know that the writer producer of that show like is here all the time and he goes to all the same movies you do. Like he sees all the same weirdo horror cult movies that you see and you should meet him. And so I ended up meeting this guy, Scott Reynolds, who uh, was a writer and producer on that show. And just through a few conversations, he asked me if I would do the, if I would record and produce the pod, the official podcast for Dexter. And so I got to do that for season seven and eight of that show and kind of, and he's been kind of, he's my family now and like kind of like one of my mentors and he's a big part of why I survived out here. Aren't podcasts like amazing? Like just the, 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 the world of it. And, and what I love about it that I feel like it's still like at ground level. Like I'm having conversations with people 
yesterday at the show that they, they have no they're like how do i listen to this right i'm like what <laughs> i'm like just go to google and there's like a play bar go to spotify go to youtube th- anywhere you want to actually <laughs> yeah, yeah. um yeah. and it's 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 amazing so you know we always like to shout out adam curry the pod father thank you so much for thank this thank you adam <laughs> thank you for for your hair I thank your... him every night before <laughs> i go to sleep yeah. man. <laughs> um, tassel leather jacket yeah. poser but but like, isn't it amazing that you could do that? You could record your Dexter stuff, your your Shockwaves. We could do our show, and I feel like everything finds its audience. Sure. Everything, yeah. like, if you, there's enough podcasts, that's why artists and musicians and everyone, like, I think they they start to respect podcasts now because they're like, these guys are reaching crevices that yeah. weren't like you know the 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 mainstream media is not reaching and like i don't know it's just such a diy thing that that i i love it yeah i think that's the appeal is you know it's it's what it's it's both the benefits and the downsides to social media because i have a love-hate relationship with it i everything i owe to social media and just to the internet like i if i didn't start a horror website i wouldn't be here uh but uh but but at the same time there's i don't know it's just there's it, it it reinvigorated that DIY spirit where you don't need a giant studio to do a podcast or an independent movie or an album. I, like Bandcamp is one of the greatest things to happen to musicians. Where I yeah. you know I did an album three years ago and the money goes directly to us. <laughs> it's like there's no middleman. Was that the Great uh, Below? Yeah, the Great Below record. Yeah. So yeah, I mean that's that's the beautiful thing is we have so much control over this stuff. You get to talk to whoever you want. And cultivate your own audience without any of the bullshit in between. I mean, it'd be nice to have marketing money so people know about it, but yeah, you know, if it's good enough, it'll it'll find its audience. So, um, let's see. Uh, Dread Central pr- presents has what are they up to? Like eight releases by now? Is that what it was? I have actually put out twelve movies since January. <laughs> okay, uh, but it, we have eight. We have eight releases on Blu-ray, the double which features. are about. 10 okay. or 11 movies worth. Yeah, we've been we're we're a little past 10 movies now. Um is the most successful one at the moment Terrifier? Yes, by far. Terrifier is definitely kind of it's just one of those weird juggernauts that I think hit at the right time. I uh, I think people were looking I mean, people always like killer clowns, but uh there's something about that imagery the mean-spirited nature of that movie, yeah. the fact that it harkens back to old-school slashers, there's just something about it that works, and a lot of people are really enjoying. And and I always credit uh, Uncle Creepy Steve Barton from Dread Central because, to be candid, that movie was picked before I started Dread Central Presents, so that was always coming out, but it wasn't one of my picks. Uh-huh. And um, But, you know, once I jumped on board, I worked really, really, really hard to do a really kick-ass Blu-ray, and just get it out there, um, and and yeah, it's it's been it's been one of our most successful titles. And the cool thing about the rest of the slate in general is, I think they all feed on each other. Uh, meaning, you know, we have a lot of weird movies that are not easy sells, but but we have a brand, we have a label. It's kind of like a record label. If it's totally punk rock, it's like one thing's going to be a little noisier than the other. But you'll check it out because you like what that label puts out. Absolutely, like like you, you know, know. So that's the idea. I've, appro- I've approached Dread Presents like a punk rock label. I love where it. you're going to get something different every time, 
but the spirit is still punk rock. Yeah, you're like, Brand hey, this, loyalty. Yeah, this yeah. is you know like a sub pop thing, or like you, it's like, oh, uh, pavements on this label. I, you yep. know, they're going to put shit out. So SST, all that stuff. Um, can you explain to me the the plot of Director's Cut with Pendulette? <laughs> yes, I can. I actually can do this <laughs> uh, because it's because it's really weird. Yeah. So basically. Just a preface, this is this is where I really got the grand idea for Dread Presents, and it, it makes a lot of sense. When I started, we already had the movies Terrifier and Hashtag Screamers, uh, and, and although I, I understood why both those films were picked, I wasn't passionate about them because they weren't, they weren't my picks. They're, they were, oh, okay, these are the horror movies we're dealing with, and, and I want to try to do different stuff. And so immediately I acquired um, Imitation Girl was my first one, which I mentioned earlier in the show. And, and just because it's like, it, it's the sort of thing that I, I see what Natasha did as a first time director and she's going to make a great movie. I don't know if it's the second, third, fourth one, whatever it is, she's going to make something that's going to blow all of us away. And it starts with this one. This is the first movie. And then simultaneously, there was this crazy Chinese movie called zombieology. Enjoy yourself tonight. That I was like, well, this is cool. And then Adam Rifkin reached out to me through mutual friends saying, hey, I made this kind of weird meta horror comedy with Penn Jillette from Penn and Teller and everyone's scared to touch it. We made it two years ago and everyone's afraid of it. And I hear that and I'm like, well, then I want it. <laughs> <laughs> if, if everyone else is afraid, then I want to see it. And so I watched it and I just I've never seen anything like it. And basically, Director's Cut was the turning point for me. Director's Cut is about. Adam Rifkin making a movie called Knocked Off with Missy Pyle and Lynn Shea. And it's crowdfunded. And so the lead crowdfunder is Herbert Blount, played by Pendulette, who is an obsessed Missy Pyle fan. He doesn't like the way the movie's coming out. So he kidnaps Missy Pyle, steals all the footage, and green screens himself into it. And does audio commentary over the whole thing. So you are watching his director's cut. <laughs> awesome. That sounds uh, great. It's the most bonkers thing I've ever seen. Like, there's no, there's no way you could sell that any other way. I, I mean, we did a trailer that I wrote. I wrote the trailer for it because I'm like, this is how we sell the movie. And they were like, oh my god, you're the first person to finally like get it, or you know. And the reason is, is because I still have movie nights with my. I, I get together with like a couple of friends on the weekends, and we do these like weird movie nights, and we always watch Golden and Globus movies or Roger Corman or Full Moon, and do you see things like your Hunter from the Future, and you're like. How much fucking coke did they do to make the green light <laughs> this movie? It's amazing. Like, how great was that canon documentary? So great. And that's the thing. It's like nobody takes those chances anymore because there's a very specific formula and this and that. And I'm like, you know what? Fuck that. It, it, we're on a low budget scale enough. I want to be the Golden and Globus of now. And let's put out weird movies. Let's do the slasher with the killer clown and the pendulette meta comedy and the crazy anime tinged you know zombie movie from china and just like fucking go for it and what's the worst that could happen at least we did it and like when you look no matter what when you look back at 2018 and I, you know sam i'm sure you saw i actually posted a video and some photos of the first 10 movies on blu-ray like in my yeah, hand yeah yeah and to me it's like you know what i i made this happen this year this whole little label right here, these things in my hand, whether you like them or not, it's a bunch of weird fucking crazy movies that I helped get out in the world this I, year. And we'll see what, go what happens from here. I'll tell you this. You, man, somewhere along the way, movie theaters, they get released in the theaters. Like, they just lost me. 
Yeah. I don't want. Yeah. I'm not going to be the old guy. I don't want to say that, but like I get it now. I can go to Amazon and just rent movies or whatever. Shit, that's just not going to be in the theaters. But every now and then, maybe something hits the theater that interests me. But yeah. it's like I'm just done. Like that. That's not my world. They're, they're not like these releases are not talking to me. So when I see something like director's cut or like Terrifier, it's like right. you know what. Fuck it. I'm just going directly there. I'll go see Meg on the big screen, mm-hmm. you know, or the Meg, whatever. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, you know, I want something like director's yeah, cut, which is. They're putting in like a cookie cutter, guaranteed they're going to make money at the box office, a couple of Disney well, like, movies, I hope... this and that, superhero. Yeah, movie. safe, safe yeah, business yeah, move, exactly. I guess. Yeah. And look, I, I love the. I still. I see all the Marvel and Star Wars movies in the theater and stuff like that, but like. If if like if there's some people in a dorm room in five years from now watching director's cut, I, like I would be so freaking happy. And sure enough, I gave it to my friends. I described it to my friend's 16 year old kid who loves makeup effects. He watched it and he loved this movie so much. And I'm like, yes, because when I was your age, I was looking for the weirdest, craziest shit. I might so, I might watch it tonight. Then yeah. you, you kind of sold me on it. And then it's there's a, another. It's, it's, it's on Amazon Prime. <laughs> yeah. Oh, is it on? I, I I don't know if I I might have that. But um, also um, the other one that I wanted to ask you about was Extremity. Was it? Oh yeah, yeah. That's uh, the next one that's so... coming out on October second. All right. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about that. Oh man, I'm really excited about that one. So basically, there there is a there is a there is a craze right now called extreme haunts. Uh, yeah. And this is perfect for the Halloween season. So I like haunts. I like mazes. I, you know, I go to Universal Horror Nights and, you know, there's the fun ones, but there are people where that is not enough for them. And so they go to these things like Blackout yep. Yep. and McCamey Manor, which and these are extreme. These are like you are signing a waiver to let people do to basically push you to your limits in terms of what you're capable of taking. And so Extremity is a narrative about that. It is. It, I think it's one of the first narratives about extreme haunts where there's a girl named Allie who has a really weird past uh, history of suicide. She tried, tried to kill herself and she signs up for an extreme haunt because she wants to push herself to the limit and conquer her fears. Uh, but, and this is what happens in real life too. You wonder what if the wrong person does this thing? <laughs> like, like where, where's the line where you, where you're crossing it and it becomes dangerous, not only for the person doing it, but what about the people putting it on? Like, what if they're getting more than they bargained for? Yeah. And so that's the basis of this movie is it takes the extreme haunts to a new level in a narrative. And it's directed by Anthony DeBlossi, who is an old friend of mine. He, uh, his first movie was Clive Barker's Dread. Uh, his most recent one was called Last Shift, which was on Netflix oh, and shit. a great, great movie. Absolutely. Great movie. He, he's one of... What a great poster, too. Oh, yeah. He's, he's one of the most underrated directors right now that nobody's talking about he's already done he's like his eighth movie and they're all good oh, uh man. but this is i think his best and i also think it's the best dread central movie so far uh and 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 you should watch if you have netflix this actually helps tremendously there is a documentary on netflix right now and it's called hunters the art of the scare yeah i saw it and uh, this guy john schnitzer made it and it is about extreme haunts uh i think it's the perfect uh preface to see this movie Okay. Because a lot of people don't believe it. They're like, oh, why would anybody sign up for this? And it's like, go watch Haunters. This is real life. People oh, are really doing this. It's real because, like, I've been offered, you know, like, I think, like, Anthony, a.k.a. The Watch. Yeah. 
you know, like they go to these things and I, I just, you know what it is? Like I would react violently. Like I don't want people, you know <laughs> what I'm saying? Kicks in. Yeah. 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 Like it's like, I'm like, you're not mad here. Like I'm not like, you're going to have to beat the shit out of me or I'm going to yoke you up one of the two. <laughs> Cause I, you know, that's, that's it. Like I, if you're pushed to that limit, I, I don't like, I rather, I rather react in a real way. You know what I'm saying? Like yeah. I don't want to, yeah. I, I don't want to play around. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, no yeah. half stepping. Yeah, no, yeah. <laughs> definitely. Like I said, listen, I'm sure they'll, you know, maybe they'll they'll jump me and beat me up, but still, like I'm not, I'm not, <laughs> not gonna go. Not for me. Not yeah. gonna go quietly. I'm not signing up. For I'm that, not signing. Yeah, know? just not. <laughs> not signing. Not, up for not that. my idea of fun at all. Did one of you yeah. say you saw Hunters already? I did. I I saw I saw I started watching it. I didn't finish it. Um, all right. I, it's something that I put on. You know, like you know, you put shit on sometimes late at night and you fall asleep so i, I gotta go back to it then before i watch. finish it because it gets crazier and crazier and for anybody that's frustrated by hunters which is real life <laughs> uh the last 20 minutes of extremity is the most satisfying thing you'll ever see okay. if, if 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 hunters pisses you off <laughs> so okay that's rolling out when yeah when is that coming out that's October second, and it's going to be on all VOD outlets. So Great. iTunes, Amazon, Vudu, wherever you watch. Oh, and we're doing a Blu-ray the same day as well. So, um, just to kind of like finish up, wrap it up here. Um, tell us about the the mixtape documentary. Oh, that's right. So, so you know, after after I did Psycho Legacy, I flirted with. I really had my heart in Never Sleep Again. I really, you know. Besides Psycho, I grew up a Freddy Krueger kid, and I really, really wanted to make that documentary. Now, I still, I, I recently looked at my outlines, and it's cool, but mad props. Those guys did an incredible job. Phenomenal. I would not have made the movie they made, and they made the best possible Nightmare on Elm Street documentary ever. So that worked out the way it was supposed to. But ever since then, I've been flirting with the idea of doing another documentary, and quite frankly... The the only opportunities that have kind of come up are like these horror retrospective ones, which are, have kind of outplayed themselves already. Like when we did His Name is Jason or Psycho Legacy, they they were not a thing. Uh, they were just bonus features on a on a DVD. It wasn't it wasn't their own release. So there was nothing I could think of that I was passionate about until uh, I met this guy named Joe Madry, who is uh, he directed a doc. He wrote a book and and did a doc called nightmares in red white and blue oh, which man. i believe is also love on netflix it. love it yep so so joe did that joe also wrote uh lance hendrickson's biography and he did one for tom mclaughlin who directed friday 13 6 so so joe is a really passionate articulate super hyper intelligent guy that approaches this material really great and basically we were having coffee and trying to come up with some ideas for maybe something we could do together and somehow we got into a whole Pearl Jam versus Nirvana debate. <laughs> uh, and we ended up making mixtapes for each other. We'll, well, mix CDs. It's like, well, you make me a Pearl Jam one with, with none of the singles, and I'll make your Nirvana one with none of the singles, and we'll see which one is better without the power of their singles sort of deal. Uh, and somehow that just involved, evolved into a conversation about mixes and like, oh, I used to make, I made this mix for my wife, and that's how we ended up together. And I'm like, you know what? People have forgotten that. Like, I get playlists, I get mixed CDs, but people forgot what it meant to make or receive a tape. Like there was so much labor that went into that. And so I was like, that's, that's something I would want to explore. Like if you want to do a, a doc on mixtapes and what it means to communicate with other people through music, then that's, that's more intriguing to me. And so we started it. Uh, we, we, I shot with a few people from, from Amiibo because I was like, well, 
let me start with people I know. And they were great. And then, and then it just snowballed. I, I literally got back to back. It was like Henry Rollins and Jennifer Finch from L7 and Kim Shattuck from the Muffs and Money Mark from the Beastie Boys. And, you know, a lot of really, really cool people kind of stepped up to be a part of this thing. And uh, we've literally been working on it for like three years. Um, we're just about done. So uh, I'm hoping we will get it out before the end of this year. We're just at the tail end of it right now. How long is it? Uh, it's, it's under 90 minutes. I, I think right now it's like 85 minutes long, which is just a traditional yeah. documentary running yeah, time. Definitely. Um, what, what is, what is the song through the years? Like, give me like your top three songs that you have put on mixtapes. Oh man, that's, that's a good question because it's so funny. I interview people and I don't, <laughs> I, I don't, I don't actually think about my own questions. Oh, you know, it's funny. I, I, what we usually do. I didn't give you the heads up, so I'm not going to ask you to do it. We, we ask uh, a lot of our guests to give us three songs that they would put on a mixtape at 15, 25, and today. Oh, my God. So That's, that's tough. Yeah. That is a tough one. So I, I'll tell you, the, one of the ones that made it on every single one of mine was R.E.M. Night Swimming. Like if you <laughs> if you got a mixtape for me, you were getting that shit. Maybe even like I'm trying to think. Yeah, I, definitely that one. I, I, that's the one. Uh, Mr. Big Green Tinted Sixties Mind. <laughs> Some good random ones. But you right. you talk. You did want to tell a story through, you know, through these things. You and know, the through, song order was yeah. important too. Yeah, yeah. man. Oh uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. The song no, order. No, I think uh, to each other. I'm actually like skimming playlists on my phone because I'm like, oh fuck, what do I do? Uh, but because because I actually made I've made a I make a lot of I I've done this now for the last five years, but every year on my birthday, I'll pick a theme, I'll make a mixed CD, I'll buy a spindle of discs, I'll burn it, and I'll give it to like everybody I see that day. Like it's like this is my mix for the year. Like this is my instead of you giving me something for my birthday, I want to give you. Uh, music music yeah. and so i've done like three birthday volumes and like one year it was like oldies but goodies another year it was um just like movies from 80s uh, singles from 80s movies uh things like that and i did a 90s mix uh last year and i've i've dabbled and done two halloween mixes now um deep cuts and spooky songs was the 2017 one i think I cr i've created playlists for all these online and there are i have a music blog like a blog spot like i forgot it's like rob g at blog spot or something like that um where i've done all these but um it's fun it, it allows you to like revisit and stay current with with the older stuff you know um because brian and i are, are super like you know we can give you a hundred albums that we'd enjoyed from this year alone yeah so yeah. we, we stay yeah, yeah. We, st we stay pretty current with that so are, are you like into anything new from the last few years anything blow you away lately um yeah not i'm not so much uh i actually believe it or not i am hardcore into soundtracks and a big part of that is because uh, I like to write while I listen to soundtracks because if I listen to something with lyrics or or singing, it kind of distracts me. Like I, I, that requires you pay attention uh, when you that kind of art. So, but something about soundtracks provides like this great little background music. And so I listen to a lot of soundtracks, a lot of electronic stuff. I I absolutely love the John Carpenter stuff. Like not the soundtracks. He's been doing these Lost Games album with oh, his yeah. two kids. Those are amazing. 
yeah, those are great. Um, like all the synthwave stuff, like that whole movement. Not not all of it, but a yeah. good chunk of it. I'm definitely digging. Right. Um, you know, um, God, let me think. Who else? Um, oh, so it's hard getting put on the spot. And you're like, what the fuck am I listening to these days? <laughs> well, yeah, you know what it is. We like I'm late on this episode, and we, we yeah. we've been going back and forth. And usually we do a little bit of prep with the guests, but. You know, our schedules were so bananas that it's like, I'm like, you know what? Me and Rob have so much to talk about that yeah. <laughs> I knew we were going to just like, uh, we could do another two hours, I'm sure. Um, oh, what? Well, yeah, 100%. Well, right now I'm listening to the new, I like the new Muse. I think they put out like four songs for the new album, oh, which I, is like this, it's this cool thing where like you pre-order something on iTunes and you keep getting like a song every week leading up to the release. I like which that. Which is, kinda, I kind of like that. That's kind of rad. I like I like um, that because it, it helps you digest the album, the upcoming album more. You know, but well, yeah, and it makes you familiar with, like, when you listen to it as a whole, you're like, oh, I already know the song. I love the song because I've been listening to it this whole time. Yeah. Um. But yeah, I dig. I I like the what I'm hearing from the new Muse. Uh, I really liked the last Perfect Circle album. I love the is, last Perfect Circle. Record. Yeah, it's really different, and I really like it. I think it. I it just to be honest with you, and and I always say this. They like those records are becoming better than the tool records to me. Oh, I, you know what? I'm I'm with oh. you on that. And what's funny about better that is like, yeah, it's just it's funny because I saw a lot of people critiquing that album when it came out. Well, not a lot of people, but like diehard tool slash perfect circle fans. And you know what it is? I've let go of I've let go of my expectations of what I what I want out of a band. And I'm just going along for the ride for what they're giving me at that point. Because here's the thing. When I look back on 2018, that Perfect Circle record is going to be one of my soundtrack albums. Yeah. I, like, I'm not going to think of it as like, oh, this is this album in their career. No, that's where I was at in life in 2018 when I hear these songs. There are some really good left turns on there that they don't normally yeah. do. Um, and then there's definitely some Perfect Circle sounding songs. And I, I thought it was uh, one of my highlights. I, I picked that. Usually, sometimes if we talk about enough music, I have like a uh, accompanying Spotify playlist to the episode that we do. Yeah. So, so when we talked about our favorites of 2018 so far, that was that was on mine. Oh, cool. Yeah, yeah. Well, if you want to know my playlist, I I have a blog where I post like once a month an entire <laughs> mix suggestion or whatever. And, What's it and called? now would be a good time for the Halloween ones anyway. So. What's the blog called so we can find it? Uh, hold on. I was just on it a second ago. Uh, it's my name, uh, robgaluzzo.blogspot.com, and, and it's called Music Music Musings from the Mind of G. Uh, <laughs> I don't know where I pulled that out of my ass. When you were speaking um, about uh, scores and soundtracks, what's your what's your all-time uh, favorite score? I think, and I've been asked this a lot, I think Escape from New York by John Carpenter yes. could be my favorite score of all time. That's a great I just one. I just love that theme so much. And the way he plays it live nowadays, where it gets more rocking, is really solid. Um, besides that, I mean, there's so many good, sure. so much good music coming out. But the one that really got me into soundtracks that, like, if I really analyze, it was it was Batman by uh, Danny Elfman. Mm. Like, Batman was so in the ether in 1989, it like you couldn't escape it. That was the first movie where, like, I knew the Star Wars theme and the Superman theme, and like you knew themes, but. Yeah. That was the first movie where when I heard, you know, the Batman theme, I was like, oh, somebody somebody made that up. Oh, it's this guy, Danny Elfman. Right. Like, that was the first time I knew a composer's name with the theme. Right. 
Didn't we just so. see him in Back to School? Boingo, boingo. That's right. We, we yeah, yeah, I love that. We yeah. <laughs> uh, so so like we we teamed up. You remember Michelle Rizzo, right? I think so. Yeah, yeah. So she she is uh, you know like I met her through like Stevie D, but um. We she runs the you know some like theater out in Bayshore, and we teamed up with her and we we presented like back to school. So we're gonna do Monster Squad next. Oh great, and, great! Uh, just one of the guys, and then yep, Chris, another favorite Christmas Vacation in Christmas December. Vacation. So we're gonna do one a month. Right. Oh man, those are great. Yeah, but, Back to School was my my birthday movie for my 40th birthday because i because i i thought what what better movie about not wanting to grow up <laughs> it just uh, still like watching it in the theater it still holds up like i know what's coming i know the jokes but like it's like rodney's like delivery i i love it like even yeah. something simple as call me when you have no class like why is that so funny it's still funny to me it's just the perfect it, yeah. vehicle for all his liners yeah. and stuff it's so, set they, up they, perfectly to finish up here i'm going to ask you uh, a, qu- a quick question here all right so mm-hmm. um i think the final girls is one of the best movies of the last like 10 years do you agree mm-hmm. or disagree uh final yeah i like final girls final girls is great i you know the in- interesting insight in that because i met we had the writers on shockwaves pretty early on in the show yeah the kid from um, uh the kid from teen witch and near dark yeah and and uh, him and his partner mark fortin wrote that movie together yep uh, and I didn't realize, I mean, I didn't realize it until we interviewed him because, you know, his, his dad his was d- Jason Miller, the father of Paris from Exorcist. So he wrote Final Girls as his way of coping with the fact that his dad was in the most famous horror movie of all time. We like, it's, it's about his dad. And we, I'm like, holy shit. We, we talked to Todd, the uh, director on some other podcasts that I was on. Um, and mm-hmm. he told us that story, and it just made the movie sink in even more, you know? Yeah. Like th- that it was his way of just like, you know, I, I it just made sense to us, and it, it kind of hit me. And uh, the mother-daughter, like, Thaisa Farmiga is so good in that movie, man. Oh, yeah. You know? Yeah, yeah, And, like, you watch it, and it's just like, I'm like, man, why am I getting so emo during this, <laughs> like, you know? Because you know that, that, that Moms is not going to make it, so yeah. they have to, like you know, like they have to say goodbye, you know, and it's, it, I thought it was a very smart, smart movie. Um, is the witch the most boring movie you've ever seen in your life? No, I love the witch. <laughs> I really do. But, but, but I will say I'm this. up on you. <laughs> no, no, no. Hear me out. Hear me <laughs> out. Uh, do I have to? Please. Uh, that's how this works. We have to hear each other out. <laughs> okay. Uh, I, 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 I saw it kind of early, but it wasn't in the best, uh, set up i think like we got a screener of it we just tried to put it on the tv and it didn't work for me on first viewing but i gotta tell you i i tend to watch all movies with subtitles just because we've been musicians for a little too long so it's a little hard for me to catch everything yo, so yo you ain't I kidding too, man. you ain't kidding man. every time my girlfriend's like yo why do you keep saying huh and i'm like i don't know <laughs> yeah so I, I need to want I watch everything with subtitles, but also because as a writer I I, I want to I don't want to miss anything I don't want to miss I anything, yeah. see all the dialogue. So when it came to the witch, I I watched it late one night. I had the Blu-ray. I have a really kick-ass system at home. I just like I hit all the lights out. I put it on. I cranked the sound, and I put the subtitles on because the the movie's really hard to understand. It's because they're all talking in a different dialect. But I got to tell you, if you watch it in the dark, subtitles on. It's a really good, creepy movie. I did. Now, it I, might not work for everybody, but that's it worked for me that way. And I was like, oh, that's pretty cool. But I saw, 
I saw it in the theaters, and um, you know, granted, my friend Chris, you know, was like, "Let's go see this movie." I didn't know much about it. I'm not a I'm not a period piece type dude. Like anything before 1930s is stretching it for me. So I went in there, yeah. and I was just like, "Yo, this is like." This is like the most boring episode of The Walking Dead. <laughs> like this shit is just like, I, and by the end, I'll never forget. After the movie was over, there was a guy sitting in the front seat, and he gets up. He's like, "That fucking movie sucked," <laughs> and he like yelled and walked out by himself. Yeah. And we just laughed because we thought it was some funny. Long Island but, shit. <laughs> uh, last movie question: Is The Void the best horror movie of the last five years? Uh, I don't know. I haven't seen it, so oh, I don't know. Oh shit! Can't, wow. can't comment. God Check damn. Yo, it's, it's so good. And and like people people want to fight me on that shit, you know? It's great. <laughs> I don't know. No, why. I'll definitely I mean, check it out. It it seems up my alley for it's, sure. It's listen, all jokes aside, it it's it's so many things. It's like Hellraiser, Assault on Precinct 13, The Thing, great it, practical effects. Amazing you know? practical effects. Yeah. I I absolutely loved it. Yeah. Um uh, and very last question so far uh, aside from any Dread Central stuff, of course, what is your favorite movie that you've seen this year so far? Oh, man. Uh, that's a tough call. You know, it's funny because usually around October is when I do start thinking about this because we always do our like top 10 of the year sort of deal. Mm-hmm. Um, there have been so many. Uh, Mandy is going to be a contender for sure. Um, I have a sneaky suspicion Halloween is probably going to be it. <laughs> I hope I'm hopeful. Me but too. earlier this year, you know what? There's there's some Netflix has been up in their game, and I really liked the Ritual, which was on Netflix. Very good. That was a pretty. That really, you know what? That scared me. That hit me in a different way because it's like the whole premise of that is like, what if something terrible happened to one of your best friends and you did nothing about it, and you live with that guilt all the time, and then you add a horror element to it. So I, I thought that was really effective. Um, Cargo was really good. That was another Netflix one. Um, so it was Ravenous. That was a pretty good Netflix. I one. haven't seen Ravenous yet. I, I'd have to go through my letterbox because I have a letterbox account where you can like catalog your movies just because I, I, I watch so much that I need to, especially yeah, for the show. For the show, you need to. Um, so I have to go back and see what came out this year. <laughs> all right. So w- uh, we're going to take some of those answers. And, and Langan, do you have a pick for your favorite so far? You know, I, I, I don't. Talking in. I'm always bad at, like, when shit comes out because I watch it at so, like, weird intervals. I don't see yeah. a lot of stuff. He's right he's still watching out. shit from 2013. <laughs> yeah. Trying to catch hey, up. If I haven't seen it, it's always new to me. You know what I'm saying? No, true. For me, I'll tell you what. My, my favorite movie of the year so far, and I mentioned it before, is When We First Met. That's on, on Netflix. That's a Adam Devine from a Workaholics movie. Oh, okay. Yo, it's, oh, you know what? I just upgrade. Upgrade is mine. Upgrade. Upgrade was the most fun I've had. Upgrade. I think Revenge was great. Oh, Revenge was great. Great, great. And and Unsane was another Unsane was great. Unsane I haven't seen yet. Is Upgrade upgrade horror, though? Do we consider that a horror movie? Oh, this isn't a horror podcast, by the way. Well, I know. but Oh, Uh, so you said favorite movie. Yeah, yeah, favorite movie. Yeah, that's what I said. (laughs) Oh shit! I'm sorry. I'm so I'm so used to people asking me horror stuff that I didn't even think of that. <laughs> nah, no, nah, we yeah. just. I mean, that's that's your that's your deal. Yeah. So that's what we were talking to you about. But oh, yeah, no, we, uh, we... great. Um, you know the the most surprising movie all year was Sorry to Bother You, and the less you talk about, the better. Yet. Okay. Yeah. That yeah. that is the weirdest fucking movie that I've ever seen in a cinema. Boots Riley. At least in the last decade. 
Boots, yeah, Ra- Boots, Boots Rally. Rally yep. Boots Rally from the the hip hop group The Coup. Yep. Definitely, I didn't see that yet, but um. All right, so I'm going to check that out. Cool. And I, I, that's it, man. Anything else you want to say, Rob? No, I just you know I know it took us a little while to sink in on this, but I, I appreciate your patience and I thank you for uh, letting me ramble for two hours. Yeah, <laughs> I hope I hope people find it interesting. I, uh, it's a great story, man. I, really. I, th- I think I think they are, and, and I think. Man, honestly, when I, I when you're friends with someone that you never see and you hear them doing so well, yeah. to me, like you know, I'm not saying you're like we're all loaded. I'm saying like you're doing what you love. To me, that's success. Like you're no doing what you love. I couldn't be any fucking happier for you, man. I'm so happy. I hope fucking everything takes off like tenfold. Oh, for thanks, you, man. man. Uh, I, re- I really, I sincerely appreciate that. Yeah, definitely. I can't wait to see the mixtape stuff. Like everything, man. I just so much success that I that I hope you know you, that you're doing over there and stuff. And I hope you never do have to star in a porn movie. <laughs> I'm just saying, you know, Cal- Cali's like that sometimes. You know, it swallows you up. Yeah, it does indeed. So, but thank you so much for doing it. Yeah, thanks, man. Thanks, guys. No, it was great to talk to you both. Thank you so much. All right, so I'll put this up soon because we're behind, and it might be, (laughs) might be even tonight. I'll let you know. So, all right, (laughs) all right, cool. Good talking to you, Rob. Yeah, I'll I'll share it whenever it's up. Absolutely. Thank you. All right, thanks, guys. Uh, Have a good Saturday night. All right, man. All right, right, take care. Bye. Bye.